2: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode, so every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want, Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. The sun never
4: sets on the British Empire, because God doesn't trust the British in the dark. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that holds that the only good American tradition is rebellion against the British. I'm your host, Mia Wong, and today we're going to be talking about the happenings in the perfidious Albion. Uh, joining joining me live from uh, one of the most accursed states currently in existence is Sophie from Mars, the co-host of Red Planet, a weekly leftist roundtable, who does many other wonderful things that involve anarchism and organizing and stuff. Sophie, how how are how are you how are you hanging in there in this sort of increasingly <laughs> failed state in the in, in, in the Midwest? That was a very good. That was a very good
5: introduction. I do think that Britain is largely out of God's sight and by consequence outside of his love. So I think you summed it up pretty well. Uh, I mean, I'm okay. I had uh, experienced a minor hate crime today, so it's another normal day of being a trans person in the UK. Some guy tried to film me on his phone and I was like, hey, I can see that you're filming me. And he didn't like argue and be like, no, I wasn't. So I know that he was. Uh, It was very cool. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, it's yeah,
4: turf, turf Island continues to be incredibly normal. And by incredibly yeah. normal I mean uh, <laughs> this this look, look. At the at the end of World War II, lots of states were divided into pieces. The UK should have been one of them. <laughs> this is, I, I, I hold but well, we're it, working and, on it now. Oh that's and by true. we I
5: mean trans people. We we that's are working true. on destroying the Union.
4: Yeah, this <laughs> is this is oh bad. I, I, I incre- incredible stuff coming. I, I really thought it was going to be Brexit that that finally destroyed <laughs> the United Kingdom North No, America. it was, tra- it was, it no, was hatred no. of
5: trans people that finally did it.
4: <laughs> Truly incredible stuff.
5: <laughs> so you want so, to ask me what it's like to be British? <laughs> you know. Okay. So
4: uh, I, I, well, I mean, should I'm, we so- both do
5: like accents for this one? Should we? Should we both be like, "Oi, governor." Let's or have some tea me, and crumpies. So I want an eel pie <laughs> and some mashed peas. <laughs> oh.
4: Okay, so I, I, I okay, I, you know, I, I, I spent some time looking at like sort of British export charts and like as much stuff in the British economy, and none of them at any point had Britain's chief export, which is jokes about Britain. <laughs> I, I no 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 wonder your economy is in shambles. Primary
5: export is like white supremacist war crimes.
4: That's true, <laughs> but the thing is like they the the UK's like ability to export white supremacist war crimes is at an all-time low. <laughs> That's it's true. kind of like, like <laughs> it's really
5: funny. I was in Armenia like fairly recently for surgery, and uh, I went to a talk by someone who like used to work in DC and now works with the Armenian government. And they were talking about like how what kind of external support they could expect for like the conflict with Azerbaijan. And someone brought up Britain, and he was just like, "Britain's not really uh, a player on the international stage anymore." Yeah. <laughs>
4: And and like, it's, it's, it's not that funny, but it's kind of like a, 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 a sign of what the UK actually is now. Which is in 2011, yeah. the British were like one of the first people who decided they were going to bomb Gaddafi. But the problem is yeah. the, the the British the British like air force was capable of dropping of doing like maybe like three or four bombing runs before they just straight up ran out of fuel. And the whole thing was like they, like they had to draw the US in because the British no longer like had the had the, like actual military capability to do imperialism anymore so things are think things are not great in the in the the sort of white supremacy factory we
5: we we we, we have reached like a really bizarre point where our our ruling class is divided like um the whole story of like the Dulles brothers and the creation of the cia is like we are going through that in reverse at this point but we've had one of the most interventionist histories of any country ever and now our ruling class is divided between we should carry on doing interventionism because it benefits us to be the worst, most ghoulish, vampiric country conceivable. And we shouldn't do that because it costs money. And why are we spending
4: money on brown people? Yeah. <laughs> <With> which just
5: two <laughs> it, terrible it, positions
6: battling
4: it out. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It, it's, 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 it's a good time in the UK. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, speaking of speaking of it being a good time in the UK, I uh, so I I, I saw I, I'd seen this before and I didn't like I didn't quite believe it and I look at the numbers, and, I, and we were talking about this a bit before we got on, but it, it looks like the UK right now is pro- projected economic performance is worse than Russia's, which is incredible because that is a country that is like under just unbelievably debilitating sanctions and is also yeah. like losing a war. And the yeah. UK's yeah. economy yeah. is more fucked than a country that is being shot with missiles. Like, what? <laughs> how?
7: I, I mean, we are we
5: we are also losing a war, but it's a, it's a war of ideas. <laughs> that's true.
4: So yeah, I I think I think we should probably when 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 we last left uh, the the United Kingdom on this show, I I I I I, I think it was I, I think Liz Truss had just been overthrown. <laughs> and we were now on a U.K. is now on their what their second consecutive unelected prime minister. So, oh, no, yeah. no,
5: Mia, 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 second consecutive. Oh, election? no.
4: Right. Because I never No, no, no. They, no, they elected Boris Johnson. Right.
5: <laughs> so this okay, is, Okay, no, this wait, is a good place to start. This is a really good place to start. Three? Um, since Tony Blair, we haven't had a prime minister who we elected to get into power. Like no, sorry. Since David Cameron, we did actually elect David Cameron, but kind, but only kind of, like kind of maybe. So like we had we had Blair, who is terrible and is worth getting into for a whole discussion in a minute, and then we had Brown, who was his uh, chancellor, so kind of our like vice president, uh, who stepped in, and then he lost to 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 Cameron. Uh, only Cameron like had a coalition. That's why I say it's like it's kind of. Oh maybe yeah, yeah. Because, he, had, he had he had the Lib Dem
4: yeah. thing, and the Lib Dems uh, yeah. d- decided to. <laughs> literally go back on everything they'd ever done and the
5: main so the main thing that was happening with the Lib Dems was they promised to protect student loan prices from going up and like yep. they had got massive support from young people and anyone who can see why it's good to be able to offer young people an education um, especially because like Blair had this big famous speech where he was like education 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 that's my excellent Tony Blair impression um, <laughs> he um and and that's also worth getting into as a, a there's it's it's a very multifaceted level of parasitic fuckery his whole education thing but because he had focused on education loads of people were really passionate about it and then the lib dems were like we're gonna stop them from making uh university fees nine thousand pounds a year and that was what got the lib dems an enormous amount of the vote and then they made a coalition with the tories and then immediately went back on it and made and that's why my my student loans are ridiculous even though i dropped out um my student loans are higher than my partner's and i dropped out in my second year and she dropped out after doing like six years of the Jesus. same degree <laughs> because she had the lower fee um but i um so then there was cameron again but without the leb dems because everyone's sick of them and no one will ever vote for them ever again the Lib Dems are just a funny side story. There are, there are lots of, like, funny and cringe side stories in British electoral politics where, like, it doesn't matter that much because they'll never get into power. But, like, the the succession of absolute, like, clowns who've been in charge of this party or that party just is really funny. Like, the Lib Dems have had a homophobe, but they had Nick Clegg, then they had a homophobe <laughs> who said that being gay was a sin. And uh. then they had someone called Joe, what was she called, Swanson.
4: Yeah, I think I think that's Swin- right. Swinson, something like so that, this.
5: That and right. she started talking about this incredible, like neoliberal, like if you have ever seen um, the thick of it, like she sound, she she sounded like a character from the thick of it. She was talking about like people having skills, wallets, and shit like this. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> she also, I think, killed a squirrel. There was a whole thing about that. What? Um, <laughs> oh boy! Then. You know, analogously, there's, like, the um, the Communist Party of Great Britain, which I hope oh, to get into God. a bit later, because that is a fascinating story. But yeah. anyway, the Tory party is the one that matters the most for now. So we had Cameron. Then who do we have? Theresa May, because Cameron bet big on us not voting for Brexit. And then Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, et cetera, came in and were like, save the NHS, migrants, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then we voted for Brexit. So then we had Theresa May by default because Cameron had left. So this is what I mean, that, like, the Tory party has this ongoing strategy of just, like, swapping someone in and then, like, calling a general election really soon afterwards. And the incumbent's going to win. So it's like, I don't consider that to be, like, someone winning an election (laughs) if they're already in through rat fuckery.
4: Although, I, 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 feel, I feel like it's it's still... Sl- at, at least there was an election for them, which is more of what's happening now. Yeah, no, I, it's it's definitely devolved. Like, it, it's definitely gotten <laughs> it was, worse, but, like, it, I think we we're on,
5: like, the seventh unelected like, prime reasonable. minister by my <laughs> count. But, like, yeah, it, <laughs> it was, like, Cameron, then, uh, then May, then Boris Johnson, and then, uh, sorry, ca- yes, Boris Johnson, and then Liz Truss, and now it's uh, Sunak... Because like, did I get them the wrong way around? Anyway, no, no, um, I, think, I think that's the right order. Sunak yeah. literally didn't have any opposition in the Tory Party leadership election. Like he won by default. It's that—that's <laughs> how dire it's gotten. Like they wanted Boris Johnson to come back and try again, and he—he he decided he wasn't going to bother. And because of that, there was no one to run against Sunak. So he just won by default.
4: <laughs> really incredible stuff. Yeah. And
5: okay, yeah, so and-, and Sunak's a fascinating character as well, because like he is incredibly green. And I don't mean environmentalist, I mean like he knows fucking nothing. And he's currently going through this, like there's there was a measurable phenomenon with David Cameron where he was really naive and he went through the neoliberal thing of being like, I'm gonna cut the red tape. Oh no, that's not working. I need massively authoritarian policies. Oh no, that's not working. Maybe this is a flawed ideology. And just like just towards the end of his term, he was like Maybe this isn't working, and then they get rid of him. Sunak is currently like very firmly in the stage of like trying to do as much libertarianism as possible and realizing that the state can only do libertarianism if they are also as authoritarian as possible.
4: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, you know, I was going to get this in a bit, but I think that there's a couple of things that have been happening simultaneously. One is that, like, okay, so we had, there, 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 was, there, there was the incredibly brief phenomenon of trustonomics, <laughs> of like their, the, the, the 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 British's attempt to like like a- actually really sort of I don't even know how to describe, like because because British politics is always neoliberal but like do 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 a kind of neoliberalism that like no no nobody has seen since like. I saw people describing it as, like, trying to do Reaganomics without the dollar, but I I, I think it's actually stupider than that, because, like, there are are places where you could conceivably pull off Reaganomics without the dollar, right? But, like, you have to have, like, kind of an economy, which is the thing the UK no longer has after they shot themselves in the foot, like, 1,000 times with Brexit. Yeah, um, Liz Truss published, like,
5: a plan for what she was gonna do in terms of economic reforms... And it crashed the pound unbelievably yes. hard. Like just just like people not even the plan. Like not even the policies
4: being implemented. Yeah. People <laughs> saw the
5: plan and the pound like halved in value overnight.
4: <laughs> yeah, and like I I there there is stuff that I have seen like it, like in, in, in the wake of Trustonomics and in the wake of like sort of Rishi Sudak attempting to piece together like a, a, an even sort of functional government that like i i never thought i would see like i i i mean i i guess i had seen the imf saying hold on you have to stop doing austerity before but like i <laughs> I, I didn't think i'd see that for the U, about the uk no it's pretty and impressive then, yeah like the other <laughs> thing that i've seen that's i just genuinely i like i can't believe it is i've seen mainstream newspaper outlets print things about the economy that you were just not allowed to say like I I, I I have I have seen mainstream newspapers admit that economic growth was actually better in the inflation-racked and class-war-torn '70s than it is now. <laughs> Which is like that is like the single thing you are not allowed to say in all of economics <laughs> yeah, because no, if, the, if you if if you actually pull out the growth rate chart and point out that economic growth was actually better in the seventies and it wasn't any successive decade, I everyone immediately shoots you because that because you know you
3: can, you can prove
4: in you can prove in one chart that yeah, yeah. <laughs> neoliberalism doesn't if work. If you're in the media class in the UK
5: and you point out that like the seventies was by any metric better than now, you are no longer invited to the eyes wide shot parties where you can like suck and fuck. Yeah. And fuck Johnson, and that is yeah, like, like the it, highest privilege in British society. So you obviously want that.
4: Yeah, you can you can you can, you can no longer fuck the pig. I uh, think things of this nature gets bad very quickly. But <laughs> the other the, day, Keir Starmer uh,
5: was interviewed, and he it was like front page Keir Starmer saying I would kiss a Tory, and I just shared it, being like, look, we already know David Cameron <laughs> fucked a, fuck
4: pig. a pig. Yeah. Oh God.
5: Starmer oh, saying he would British. kiss the Tory is just uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just a cherry on
4: top. Yeah. <laughs> So okay, I want to ask a little bit about what is going on in the in the in the British economy because I have spent some time attempting to figure out what the fuck even is the British economy, and as as, as best as, as best I've been able to determine, it, it produces okay, it produces financial quote unquote financial services, which seems to be the UK's sort of polite euphemism for doing money laundering for like <laughs> both the regular bourgeoisie and for this enormous yep. class of like kleptocrats and yep. petrol oligarchs who like get their money by extracting it directly from the state. Yep. Um, it Correct. it seems like that, So it seems like you have that layer. You have the layer below them who are just like somehow more landlords per capita than exist in like any other place that has ever existed. Yeah. And then below that, there's this quote unquote service economy thing. Yeah. I think you're
5: getting it. I think you're you're pretty much getting it. I think okay, there are two sides to British politics. There's this this economic one that you're pointing out, which is like, let me put a pin in the economics. Right. That the the economy of the UK is unbelievable and we'll get to it in a second and then there's the like the the um the electoral politics that they try to like that is is just a farce to try to like keep people from ever looking too closely at the economics like ever looking with a sensible lens at the economics um, the electoral politics is just like eternal war on a on a set of marginalized communities um yeah. young people uh immigrants refugees and asylum seekers sex workers trans people uh <laughs> black and minority ethnic Britons, um the uh the grt community travelers uh, enormously uh, like that was something that like yeah, a Christ. lot of people thought that like new labor under blair was like so progressive and was like ending races it was a big like obama adjacent moment for us <laughs> and like but they were horribly racist to travelers and that's like escalated in recent years to like um, if people are familiar with the police crimes sentencing in courts bill, like that um, got somewhat defanged, but like one of the worst parts of the the bill still got through was just like ending the right to roam, which is effectively just a genocide against travelers. Yeah. Um, when I mentioned sex workers, like a lot of British sex workers are pushing for any kind of legal reform that would be better. But like our most progressive politician, like Jeremy Corbyn literally like still supports the, the Nordic model. Like, it's um it's a nightmare um socially the the political side of that the, the social side of the politics in the UK is just war on as i say like dividing up the entire population into marginalized groups forever eternally like saving this idea of like the blue collar working class white man who also earns like 80,000 pounds a year yeah. um and and that's the that's the ideal voter even though that's no one um and then there's the economics. Okay, so the... Ec- <laughs> and all of that is a smokescreen for the economics. So, like you said, um, lowest level, there's the service economy. Because we, like the rest of the Imperial Corps, exported all our in- industrial stuff uh, to the Imperial periphery when our industrial sectors got uh, unionized, uh, we are now a service economy. Um, so, practically all jobs in the UK are poor people prov- providing some kind of service for rich people. Um then like you say there's the landlords above that we have a, we have a wild time with landlords and that there is there is a plus side to that which is that, that like our tenants unions are fantastic like we have we have such a boom in tenants unions i've been interviewing activists and organizers for a couple of years now and in the u.s you guys are doing okay with tenants unions you've got a bigger challenge because okay, like you the cops show up with guns to evict people so that is like that is a crazy yeah. time but like we have such bigger, stronger tenants unions, and like I think the possibility of something like a full scale rent strike
4: happening in the UK is actually pretty like pretty feasible. Um, the U.S. So and people then, just don't like get that shit. Like I, I, I had back, 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 back when back when I was an incredibly naive youth and was in the DSA. We had an entire like massive battle in my chapter about whether about whether we should do tenants organizing. And I was on the side of like, well, yeah, obviously we should we should do yeah. like I, I, I had one of the fucking Chicago DSA leadership people like in 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 this meeting said to my face. And I quote, how how does building tenants' unions build working class power? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> These people are <laughs> clowns. Absolute clowns! Like, just like every 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 time they walk down the street, their giant noses go honk, and like their clown shoes hey, go. I, I'm not I'm
5: not gonna like, be in. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna engage uh, in anti-clown slander here. I uh, I I do not. I, I think it's very unfair on clowns to compare them to the BSA. That's true. That's true. Um, God <laughs> There's Atricious a line In Angeling Paradise Where she says like um, <laughs> I don't want to be The head of the local DSA chapter I just want to be on The Digimon the movie Soundtrack <laughs> I'm like Fuck
4: yes Yeah Okay speaking Speaking of the Digimon the movie Soundtrack <laughs> uh,
5: Very nice Very nice
4: I'd, I'd, Maybe 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 we'll get Sponsored by by, by Digimon the movie that Yeah maybe has an ad For Digimon the movie Yeah yeah I hope uh, It's it, oh, It's gonna be Fucking gold again Or like like, we're, we're, ah. please, please, okay. Just like uh, once again, uh, other, we, we have talked about this on multiple shows now. Please stop DMing other Sophie about, about, <laughs> about the stupid gold ads. We know they're there, which, yeah. Uh, don't buy gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And we're back. I, ho- I hope you. I hope. I, ho- I hope you're now into Digimon. Uh, they they got they, they got little monsters that turn into things with giant guns. I hope what, that what, what you being you ask carpet for?
5: bombed with Digimon the movie ads has reshaped your brain to a higher consciousness. Digimon consciousness. Um, l- let's talk about financial services. You mentioned this very briefly, but this is actually so. Like, okay, most people in the UK working in like fucking uber or like deliveroo or some other uh nightmarish service sector job then there's uh the petty bourgeois uh who are so overwhelmingly landlords now and then (laughs) and then there are mega landlords we have a ton of like mega landlords who something really insidious about that by the way is that we have a lot of like housing associations that claim to be like for the good of the tenant and claim to be like socially progressive trying to help people out and they actually own like thousands of properties. And oh, like there God. are people with like uh, through the tenants union. My partner knows someone who, who her, it was like raining in her flat because the leaks were so bad. It was like rain indoors and she had like black mold and none of her lights were working. And that was like a, that was a housing association. They, they are some of the worst landlords. And then above them, <laughs> the UK is running one of the biggest money laundering operations in the world. Uh, maybe the biggest Um, i I think
4: it's i don't i don't don't know like maybe maybe i don't i don't even i don't even think like the cayman islands or like or the bahamas have like that kind of like or panama has that kind of throughput no we're really
5: familiar with like switzerland and like you say panama and the cayman islands and some people are somewhat familiar with ireland as being like tax havens yeah but like none of these actually compare to britain because britain like (laughs) forged all of these relationships with the entire world because it invaded them and now it it has those like the british empire ended in name and legal function but did not end in terms of financial services like that is our that is our grip on power is like that we yeah we just launder a bunch of rich people's money um there's a great documentary called the spider's web which talks about this and like the head of uh her Majesty's oh i guess it's his majesty now fuck the king just taking this opportunity to say fuck the king um hmrc anyway the head of hmrc like literally just works for the the money launderers like the people who are just trying to bring through like billions of of dollars to to launder um yeah like when i say about like the rest of our politics being a smokescreen it's because like this is everything for the british ruling class like it's all about them trying to to launder money and like I think that like the, the recent rise in like far right populism or attempt at that in the UK, which by the way, I don't think is going as well as they wish it was anymore, but like,
4: well, cause they did, cause they did Brexit. It turns out Brexit was a really bad idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
7: like, there was
5: a, I remember there was something for a while, a while ago I was in some forum thread where they were just post- posting like Trump supporters realize they're going to die because of Trump. Um, it's a very similar phenomenon in the UK. Like you, there's a lot of, and I don't really delight in it because it's just, it's just like looking at a lot of working class, working class people suffering. Um, but there is a very like very obvious and noticeable trend of like people who voted for Brexit realizing that it's completely fucked everything about their life. Um, but when there was this attempt at like raising far right, um, like false class consciousness in a very Trumpian way, um that was all, like, a very big attempt at the smokescreen, because, like, if there's... Have you ever seen Johnny English?
8: <laughs> this
5: no, fucking, what, what is, what is Johnny this, English? <laughs> there's this fucking Rowan Atkinson film where he, like, is a... He 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 winds up being, like, a spy, and the villain in that film is French, of course, because, you know, the the, oh, the French Tom, are so yeah, evil compared cetera, to Britain, uh, Baguette, yes. and so on. Um, and, uh that guy who's played by john malkovich wants to uh get the british throne and then sell britain to um private investors to turn the entire island into a prison so <laughs> he created modern britain <laughs> yeah it's he, just outlining modern british politics yeah so um <laughs> so like he <laughs> um in terms of social policy like it would suit the ruling class of Britain very, very nicely if Britain was just one big jail. Because, like, they they are only inconvenienced by having to cater to any kind of population. Like, if the British population just all died, the Tories would be having such a good time. Like, they would fucking love it if there was absolutely no one to govern over, and Britain could just, like, on paper have a population of 60 million. And then they could use that for the money laundering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but actually, you go here and it's just a complete like ghost island. Like that, everyone is gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is that. It's just it is just for money laundering. Um, like I think the London Stock Exchange is the oldest stock exchange. I think um, I'm not sure, but like obviously it's had a long time to develop, and like it's yeah the the um, there is more fiscal capital or marx would have called uh fictitious capital in the world now than there is like real capital or financial capital um and yeah uh, a huge amount of it goes through the london stock exchange um and through like yeah through through the services of of hmrc and through like uh the various schemes that it's really funny i had to um I had to. This I don't think this is like as insidious as it sounds, but I was filling out my tax return recently, and there was a there was a question that HMSE like just straight-facedly asked like have you participated in one or more tax avoidance schemes and i was like <laughs> this is a normal country this is a this is a really normal normal country uh, <laughs> like, like they just asked have you and, I, and like when when my partner saw this because she was filling out hers she was like is this just a trick question to get you to like dog yourself into the cops and i was like no no this is a this is a normal question in case you are a very very rich person who has engaged in a tax avoidance scheme and you want to just report that and then the HMRC will be like
4: cool good job avoiding
5: paying taxes.
4: You know when I, when I was sort of like running through my research for this I yeah. I I I remembered a David Graeber quote about the British economy where he said something to the effect of the United Kingdom's chief product is, is the docility of its working class, which is what allows oligarchs to just like put their money there because they know that they're going to have a butler and no one's ever going to steal it. Yeah. Yeah. But but you know, the the sort of other side of, of, of the Graver in the UK arc is, you know, towards the end of his life, like he starts writing a lot about the revolt of the caring classes and about this sort of like, he, he was talking about, he was talking about stuff that was happening like 2018, 2019. Yeah, yeah um, totally. Like, a lot about like, I, I, but the shot, actually too, because there's a lot of uh, yeah, sort of ambulance and he
5: people. was directly involved in some organizing to yeah, try exactly. and stop the IMF.
4: Yeah, yeah, and but you know it, what's interesting to me about this is like,
5: oh, I, I don't want to let it go by without saying the IMF must be destroyed at all costs. Oh That's yeah, a, a policy I have about mentioning the IMF.
4: The like yeah, the the the. the
5: actually demonic real demons exist and they're called the international monetary fund
4: (laughs) yeah i I talked about this in my neoliberalism episodes well well, and this is another another sort of graberism thing right is the the sort of being attuned to the fact that all of this sort of like red tape cutting bullshit is actually just a a smokescreen for an incredibly sort of unbelievably violent or oppressive bureaucracy and the sort of the the, the global wing of the violent or oppressive bureaucracy is the imf yeah and well it's
5: a really weird what i was saying before about like Cameron realizing that neoliberalism doesn't work towards the end of the time that he was in office. Like, what I'm referring to is that he wrote a letter to his constituency, to his local council that he's supposed to represent, and he said that, like, they'd been complaining that they didn't have the money to 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 do the things they needed to do. And he was like, Well, you should just cut out the red tape. Like, you should just clear out the backroom bureaucracy. That's the thing that's costing you all the money. And I think with some time to reflect on this, where I think he, he gets that idea from is that he's seen how well it works for the for the ruling class. He's like, the more red tape we cut, the more we get rid of regulations, the more money we make. And so he's like, that is simple then. Minus red tape equals more money. Um, and they replied to him like, what the fuck are you talking about? There is no backroom <laughs> bureaucracy. You cut our budget with austerity policies. That's why there's no money. And he was like, oh, fuck. <laughs>
3: like <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> well and, and, and I, I you know th- this 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 seems to have like a- a- escalated to levels in the UK that are like sort of genuinely catastrophic i mean you know one thing that's yeah. sort of been quietly going on is like the sort of quiet privatization of the NHS yeah which is yeah the NHS is the national health service or as trans people call it the no healthcare service <laughs> um
5: i haven't heard that one before that's very good
4: yeah but the, you know okay but i, I, I i'm currently I,
5: I a, a good demonstration of that actually i am currently trying to get onto the pilot scheme trans plus which uh basically gets you to the end of the waiting list and if the if the pilot scheme goes well hopefully we'll we'll be getting rid of the hopefully Hell but yeah. like this is the good alternative right and to get onto it i need to get my referral which my gp told me they did but didn't do so ah. to do that, I need to get my current GP to write the referral to the GIC and include a note that says, this was meant to be done in August 2020. And to do that, I called up the, the GP office the other day, and they said, I was on the phone with the GP, and I said, go to the GIC's website, click on if the section that says, you know, you're a GP and you're looking to refer a patient. And she was like, oh, I can't do that because of our computer systems. So what I'm going to need you to do is go to the website yourself and click on the thing that says you're a GP, even though you're not, and download that form and then email it to our office and then call the office and then get them to make the referral. <laughs> this is the good alternative. This is the good alternative compared to just waiting for like 15 years and then killing myself. This is the good option for healthcare on for trans people in the UK right now. <laughs>
4: yeah it's a yeah like as as, yeah. as 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 like shitty as american trans healthcare is a lot of the yeah. time it is somehow well okay un- 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 unless you're in a place that has made it illegal now which uh is fun it's it's a lot less fucked than the uk's for, which is for kind a of hot sec incredible. i
5: really thought we were, we were we were like outdoing the gop states like for for just a second there we were like inching ahead in how much our country hates trans people and then like all these bands came out that were just like taking trans kids away from their parents or whatever. Yeah, and I was like, like mm-hmm. okay, no, they they clearly won. Um, yeah, for now, anyway. We'll see we'll see whether you know whether like <laughs> the Rowling bill comes in, in in 2024 or something that like yeah. you know <laughs> it's just like execute transgenders on site.
4: <laughs> I would, would would not surprise me at all the it oh, god. <sighs> It's fun being just the scapegoat for yeah. everything that's ever gone wrong, ever. Hi, this is Mia in post. This episode was recorded just days before Brianna Jai, a 16-year-old trans girl, was stabbed to death in a town near Liverpool. Um, We haven't talked about it really on the show over the last few weeks because very little of what I and what I think the rest of the crew have had to say about Brianna Jai's murder between sort of... The racking sobs that yet another trans person taken from us is even remotely publishable. What I can say is that some of the wealthiest and most powerful people and institutions in the world are trying to exterminate us. And the BBC, the New York Times, JK Rowling, and every major British political party, and the American ones too, have blood on their fucking hands and should be treated accordingly. And on that bleak note, uh, yeah, we can go back to the rest of the episode.
5: Yeah, it is wild being a country that like uh supposedly like what the thing we probably have the proud to be the proudest of in our entire history is creating a, a, a system for socialized medicine where people have free at point of use healthcare. And since it was created, the ruling class have tried as hard as possible to destroy it. And they're finally succeeding. I'm actually having friends are telling me recently that they're going to like hospitals and the hospitals are telling them that they're, you know, they're privatized and they'd like they can't. They'll have to charge them because they're not like uh, contracted to do NHS work anymore. So that's you know they're they're succeeding at that. I we've probably wandered away from the point of what we were trying to say. I
4: yeah. I, well,
5: I've, I, mean, I have very I, resentful I, feelings to do with healthcare in the UK. I'm currently playing with my comfort knife. To-
3: yeah. <laughs> I
4: mean, I I think I I I I I, I think this is sort of. Circling around the thing I wanted to talk about next, which is uh-huh. that, like, you know, on, on the one hand, we have this sort of like, j- just just the sort of monumental collapse of anything that could like conceivably make the UK a society. But on the other hand, Graeber's a lot sort of people of share like, the
5: Joker meme where they're like, "We live in a society," and I'm like, "If you're in the UK sharing this, you are wrong."
4: Yeah, we no, live in an economy. Don't. Yeah, it, it's live in an
5: economy. <laughs> it's it's pretty bleak it would be fucking great to live in a society i wish
4: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know on, on the other hand dave dave, dave graver's fin- final prediction has like mm. now come true which is that we are now actually like f- the, the uk is now sort of starting to see the full scale revolt of the caring classes yes and that that has come in the form of what well, okay, i have i have no idea what this episode is going to come out sorry everything's chaos right now um <laughs> uh, but I, as of time of recording, I guess, is it tomorrow that something like half a million people are going on strike? And lo and behold, who was oh, going on strike? half a million strike?
5: people went on strike last week. Oh, was it last week? Yeah,
4: yeah. Am I? Have I? Okay, I'm a dumbass. Isn't, yeah. isn't <laughs> are there more, Aren't there more <laughs> okay, tomorrow? Okay. Or Irrespective am I my of when confused? the episode
5: comes yeah. out, on the 1st of February over half a million people went on strike and there were massive demonstrations and marches ac- across the country it's the biggest strike and biggest marches that we've seen in like over a decade um we haven't seen marches this size since protests against the iraq war
4: yeah yeah and well okay so in, 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 inshallah they'll be more effective than the iraq war protests <laughs> but i yeah and i mean i i th- i think it's interesting if if you look at the people who are who are striking it is yeah it is people who do care labor it's teachers it's yeah. nurses it's ambulance drivers people in civil yeah. service like train and bus drivers mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. like still on strike in various capacities uh, that the- a,
5: a, a point to pull you up on that but it agrees with your point even more in terms of the rebellion of the caring classes the current drive of the strikes from the rmt that's rail maritime and transport workers um big up the rmt my boys are incredible mick lynch shout out love you to pieces um uh the current strikes are actually driven by the janitorial staff um who are like some of the worst treated and worst paid among mm. all of the train and transport staff um like bus drivers and train drivers and so on have joined in on it and that as you're saying is like is still part of the like rebellion of the caring classes but um it's even more so because it's literally like the cleaners who were like yeah. this is fucked we need better wages
4: yeah and there's been well yeah and i think like what like postal workers are also on strike i uh... There's other i'm pretty i'm pretty sure other people are also on strike too. that i'm leaving out here uh let's see
5: so ambulance drivers civil servants teachers uh nurses uh training oh, workers uh, uh yeah, like a, yeah university yeah, that's workers that's true yeah, yeah, university workers. There are. <laughs> there, there are, but I do not care about this and have no solidarity for them. Border agents on strike oh, right stay now. Stay on strike,
4: baby. Fucking <laughs> never come back to work.
5: <laughs> you, Just keep fucking we are, striking.
4: <laughs> we, we are starting the abolition of work with you. Congratulations, yeah. you are now. You have now finally become the vanguard of the working class. It's, 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 what, it's what you fucking cops have always wanted. <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. get to do yeah. it now. Yeah. Well,
5: cops is an interesting uh, thing as well because, like, uh, on. Red Planet every Sunday, eight pm to eleven pm UK time. Uh, check it out. Uh, we um, we we have a running prediction to do with the, the with the police that like as their job, it, as class warfare becomes more naked, the police's job is more and more obviously just yeah. what it's always been to put down the working class but as your as your job just becomes like smashing like bottled water stands that people put up in a heat wave to help homeless people and like trying to evict people and trying to like stop people who are striking for better pay uh and also everyone around you constantly calls you a pig and like degrades you and is like are you enjoying what you're doing do you have a good life are you liking this job uh we'll see like lots of police quitting and actually this month the Telegraph, who can't really be trusted, but this yeah, does fit into a larger pattern. The Telegraph reported that uh, more cops had quit than had been recruited in the last month, to and that's fair, part of a overall pattern that has been going on for a while.
4: To be fair, that that I, I don't know. I in the U.S., every single newspaper says that every week, and it's never true. So <laughs> yes I, I don't know. I mean, to, to, the, to I went be to be fair, at yeah, the, actual the British figures, like it
5: does look like the I mean, cops quitting in the UK has been on the rise since like uh like early last year um and enormously as well uh, and you yeah, can and tell I, because like uh the met has been putting out loads of recruitment ads <laughs> which oh like is really second no I have, a, I have a little story about this actually they have this ad in wait is it nearly time for ads because i could add pivot oh, right yeah, after oh yeah this. we have yeah
4: we, this is this is okay yeah, incredible right, oh, i was in,
5: i was so i was in Peckhamplex cinema which is Peckham is it is, is like a cheap community cinema um it's like uh yeah, it, 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 they deliberately keep it cheap so that people can enjoy it. and It's an event space and whatever. And we were about to watch a movie. I, I forget what now, but like there was this ad for the for joining the Met Police oh, that was like this black guy talking about how he was really worried about his sister joining the police because she's a black woman and she's a Muslim and he, he was worried she's going to face all this discrimination. But actually, she's having a great time and everyone loves her, so it's, it was totally okay the whole time. And now I, I have this personal policy, which is if there is an ad for crypto, an ad for joining the, the Met, the army, whatever, and no one else. And, and, and if no one is yelling at the screen because they are being subjected to fascist propaganda, that then then it's going to be me who's yelling. So I just started yelling <laughs>
7: <laughs> because like
5: because like two weeks earlier when I was watching this ad, like Chris Carver had been had been shot dead by met police officers in south london a black man right and they have a black man here telling us that actually the met's really cool and doesn't do any racism and i was just yelling and yelling about it and i was yelling about like fucking if people aren't familiar with the case of like sarah everard who was kidnapped and, and and assaulted and murdered by wayne cousins a met police officer like you know i'm just i was just going off about all this stuff because i'm just like i like i was just responding directly to the ad like how are they running this shit as if We don't know all of this And just lift, listing off everything that came to mind Because again, it's my, pol- it's my personal policy I'm not going to get any trouble for it And someone should be yelling When you're subjected to propaganda Yeah. Anyway, speaking of propaganda Here's an ad Ooh. for Joining the Washington State Highway Patrol
4: ah. <sighs> And we're back from your uh, uh, Fascist propaganda session I uh, hope you didn't enjoy it <laughs> I hope you yelled the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess I, I, I guess the thing that is genuinely sort of different between the American and British police is that the British police, like the the, the American police, is like every single American city is like at least it, well, okay. So it, it's they're they're technically only about forty percent police budget by volume, but that 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 doesn't count the money. You can check money, that out by googling 40 percent police." Well, you, you you will you will see a variety <laughs> of things here, but like you know, t- technically it's 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 technically only about forty percent of the city's budget by volume, but that's because of that that doesn't count the amount of money the police just steal. But in the UK, yeah. they actually kind of like they 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 were kind of stupid, and they they seem to actually have kind of done neoliberalism to the cops, which is very funny because it means that you get Jeremy Corbyn like running on hiring more cops, and it's like, yeah, sir, yeah. like. no it's yeah like it's like
5: like you've been you've been protesting like apartheid and illegal wars and all of this shit for like 35 (laughs) years and you're like we should have more cops what the fuck are you talking about
4: man i I remember what i I was i was watching people who like used to be like autonomous in like fucking 2011 being like no we need more cops like they were literally beating you up what the fuck is wrong with you oh my
5: god that guy who fractured my skull i need more of that
6: <laughs>
5: yeah no it's pretty fucked there is like an enormous amount of british brain going on where even our uh, our like most progressive politicians will support support shit like that and like i said earlier like the nordic model right like we yeah, yeah. there are there are limits to the british imagination um yeah because we've been doing this shit a long time we've really
4: pr- perfected the the brain worms <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, 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 have okay. So my, 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 my least progressive theory is that uh-huh. there, there's, there, there's, some, there's something called large population island brain, which affects it it, 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 it affects the UK and Japan are are the two sort of <laughs> models of this, where you like being being on an island and then also running an Empire drives you makes you like absolutely psychotic in like very very specific ways that are like both the same it's like you 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 have a massive nonce culture like the, the way yeah, you we, do imperialism yeah, our is similar
5: public nonces is is thriving yeah uh, we recently know you. uh Gary glitter recently got out of prison and then immediately went on to far-right uh TV God. network GB news and said that woke cancel woke cancel culture is the biggest problem
4: Yeah, like oh, it it, it's 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 it is a very grim state of affairs. Yeah, is is what I will say about both the UK and Japan. Although I guess to be fair, to be fair to Japan, they did just assassinate their ex prime minister and probably the most like historic, like probably the most successful historical assassination not done by the CIA in like a hundred years or something. Like really incredible work. (laughs) On, on, on the part of the man with the electric blunderbuss. The UK, however, not not there yet. Yeah, uh,
5: I mean, where's our where's you know, where's our where's our homemade blunderbusses? Come on. Uh, Come on, guys. Step it up, guys. This is man, not a okay. call for leftist terrorism. I am not. No, Met like, police, please ignore what I just said.
4: <laughs> the, 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 I will say this thing about the British, too. Like, like one, one of the sort of British psychoses that I think about a lot is, is like the specter of knife crime. Because it's like... Okay. Knife, like, on you the say. one hand, like on the one hand, like yeah, like okay, so like people get stabbed and it sucks. On the other hand, like, at, like having 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 grown up in the U.S. in a country where like all of our kindergartners are basically being trained to like storm mat, like do do yeah. like human wave yeah. attacks and mass shooters, it's like. How, how are you guys, like, how are you guys, like, like, how is this the thing that you guys are, like, like, you have police brain about is knife crime? Like, I think that, on. no, no, I, I think that,
5: like, the knife crime thing is a very American perspective on British politics. Like, we don't actually talk about it that
4: much. Oh, thank God. Like, okay. All right. it's this really, like, an American
5: it. conservative talking point that, like, if you get rid of the guns, they'll just stab each other. So look at the UK, they don't have guns, and they're just stabbing each other. Um, like some conservatives still care about knife crime here there was a big wave of caring about it when again yeah, it was like a
4: few years new ago. labor
5: were like doing their race like their 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 hush hush racist policies to try and like brutalize the working class especially in black neighborhoods um but like no i mean the the cop brain is like in everything it's just it's not it's not like it's every fa- i think british brain is just an evolved form of cop brain it's like when cop brain affects everything in life then you then you are british
4: um, yeah, and I guess I, I guess also it's like it's you have cop brain and then also landlord brain at the same time. <laughs> it's just like a a, a a a truly sort of dastardly combination. What is a landlord like, but a cop for housing? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I say it was my fucking. Well, I guess, I guess. Okay, it, it is. I I I think I I have. I'm, no, that's not true. I'm, I haven't gotten there yet. But I, I am fast approaching the, the, the two weeks since my apartment was last flooded by sewage mark. Oh and I'm very God. excited about this. <sighs> love, 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 love landlords. Love renting. It's We, we here on this podcast system. love landlords. It's uh, great. <laughs> Is my ceiling still falling on me? <laughs> At least not up Oh, God. Oh, oh, boy. That's a new... Oh fun! Okay, this has been this has been the, the Mia's apartment is falling apart update.
5: Well, should we talk more about the rebellion of the Karen classes? Yeah, yeah, I think let's, that's a really that. I think that's a really pointed and worthwhile Graber prediction. I'm a big grave head. I have a friend who I just get onto Discord chat with, and we as we put it, Grabe out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I like to say I'm getting the Grabe from Beyond the Grave 24 um, seven. But the um, <laughs> But the the rebellion of the caring classes is a really poignant thing to talk about because neoliberalism uh, does not care about reproductive labor in the slightest. And where like where older forms of capitalism had uh, had that covered because women were basically fucking slaves, um, they now the uh, now like reproductive labor has to be done by professionals because everything must be marketized and of course being the most essential labor it's the gonna be the one with the shittiest working conditions yep. and the lowest pay that's that's yep. neoliberalism for you if if every if it must happen it must be dog shit um and so like this is where we see the the yeah rebellion of the caring classes now especially with the with the set the service sector economy so like within the imperial core everyone's being put into some kind of care job essentially and they're treated like shit <laughs> and yeah. now they're starting to actually form unions and fight back which is really fucking cool
4: <laughs> um, yeah i want i want to I briefly interject here with a thing everyone gets wrong about margaret thatcher which is that every, every everyone and their mom will t- will say that fucking quote about uh there, there is no society there's only the individual except they never they never leave out the next part of that sentence which is, they always leave out the part of it that they always leave out at the end is that the the, the actual line goes and and it's it, it's slightly weird because it was it was in response to a question, yeah. but basically the line is: "There's no such thing as society. There are only individuals and the family. There are men and women,
5: and there are families." Is what she yeah. says because yeah,
4: yeah. and. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, yeah, to To, to be clear, to be clear, uh, Margaret Thatcher, not a friend of the transes.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly. Shockingly. Wow, I couldn't guess.
4: But, 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 I, but I, think, I think this family part's also very important because... Yeah, definitely. You know, like, like neoliberalism has these, it has these two conflicting tendencies, right? It, it has this one tendency that is... Like, well, it, it, it's 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 try, it's trying to use the, the the family to create labor in two different ways at the same time. One is this: it's treating it's treating each person in a family as an individual who can go yeah. produce value for people. But then secondarily, yeah. right, like you know, like neoliberalism is is an, is an ideology of incredible alienation and incredible sort of atomization. Yeah, and also it's 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 an economy based on it's you know it it it, it, it it, but simultaneously, it has to be able to do reproductive labor, and yeah. the the way that it sort of like bridges the gap of this contradiction is with this sort of alliance it has with the religious right and with sort of like religious conservatism in general because it, it yeah. can it can put up this false and this is this is where all the trad calf shit comes from this is where all of the sort of like trad wife like oh hey you can you can yeah like, when she's yeah, saying
5: there are individual men and women and there are families there is an implicit thing there where she's saying families. Like she, she is leaving out children as people because yep. children are properties of family. And like they like belong to the parents, image. and also like whatever reproductive labor is done to brought, to make those children into a, into individual men and women, that doesn't. That's just part of the family. Like she's there's a lot of heavy lifting happening in there are families, right?
4: Yeah, and 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 I and I I think the other part about this, right, is like this is this is the sort of like the 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 sort of like neoliberalism has this pseudo populism that it generates. That's about yeah. sort of like the family and like the church, it's like this this the sites of sort of like like this is how you resist sort of social alienation as you do these things, but like. Both yeah, of these places, neoliberalism are like-
5: has, like, a huge focus on consensus politics where they, they say these are the resources that are available and you all get a say in how they're distributed in, in your community. You can come together and engage in the electoral process and consensus politics. And we all agreed on what... And that's, this is all just process to manufacture consent because, actually, there are infinite resources available because we launder money for the rest of the entire fucking world. And if this yeah. were, like, any other country that would have any kind of, like uh uh trickle down <laughs> to get into the reaganomics <laughs> uh, effect for the rest of the population but being britain uh you know the the country that invented concentration camps and workhouses no absolutely not not a not a red cent is going to be touched by the uh
4: by the pores <laughs> yeah and, and i mean that that kind of like I don't know that, that that I think like that that also sort of goes back to just like the containment of the working class. The British working mm. class is like a political force and that's starting to come on. But even then, like, you know, this is my what 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 if I one are the things that I say that gets people the most mad at me mm. is that like there's like, OK, one in two day strikes are kind of like like. You know, every, 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 every single year, India has the largest general strike in human history, yeah. and yes. it's one day, and it does nothing, and the only times it hasn't done nothing are the times when people have actually, like, kept going on strike, or, like, yeah. you know, mar- mar- marched a farmer's protest to One- and two-day
5: strikes are a good practice to show that we could hold yeah. out for as long as possible.
4: They shouldn't and, and- be, like, the whole thing. And you know, okay, and like uh, we, I, I, I've talked about this before when we, when I've sort of like interviewed nurses on this show, and like, like th- there are absolutely times, es- especially, especially in well, I, actually, I don't know if this is if this works the same way in the British nursing sector, but like there, there's there's absolutely like there, there are absolutely tactical reasons why you want to do a, a limited duration strike, especially in the nursing sector that have to do with how like how how the contracts work at bringing in scabs, but like one in two day strikes are kind of like. They're more symbolic than they are sort yeah. of like, yeah, an actual instrument of class war. And I, and, I, and I think part of something that you have to engage with in the British process, and, and this is this is also true in the U.S., but our unions are like there's like two of them and they represent about seven people. So it winds up being less of a deal unless you're like a UC grad student on strike. But it is also that like in Britain, the trade unions are just like actively, directly sort of like feeding into this incredibly dog shit like yeah yeah, political machine which is okay
5: yeah this is an interesting question um this is an interesting like thing to think through because so if people aren't familiar we had thatcher uh, bringing in the wave of neoliberalism uh you know along with everyone's favorite guy ronald mommy reagan and um she waged war on the miners especially but the unions in general across the uk and crushed the unions and for this she is forever remembered as a saint by the ruling class and by the conservatives um but this was as i said earlier like this was a part of a trend in the imperial core where um the most strongly unionized sectors which were manufacturing and industrial and like uh mining uh were uh, th- those unions had to be crushed so that that label and then that labour was outsourced to the imperial periphery, yeah? Right, and
4: you know, so I mean, now we're, we're all in, to... jo- in
5: jobs and sectors where there are no unions, and there are these huge corporate unions in the UK, like Unison, um, that like basically claim to be able to represent any worker. Which, uh, you know, if you're a fan of the IWW, shout out to the Wobblies, like, you know, that's that sounds pretty cool, but then no <laughs> it's a yeah. massive yellow union if people aren't familiar with yellow unions we should hopefully be having an episode of uh, red planet soon about just like making the distinction uh so that people can tell them apart really quickly but like yellow unions first came into existence in France i think uh and it was this pointedly this pointed change from red unions who were actually fighting class warfare and actually trying to like stop the capitalist notion of work to a yellow union which was like a corporate union and 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 generally speaking it would originally be like the corporation who was having their unions like their workers were rebelling they would form a union that was employed by the corporation and then be like look it's a union guys you can join that and you'll get better conditions and it was a trap but now we have with the miracle of neoliberalism we have those that, that, that just are their own corporate entity and they're like we can represent any worker because we are a massive union with an entrenched corporate structure who have, like, direct ties and constant political deals with, the with like, political establishment, which, like, you know, our Labour Party should rename itself at this point. Like, it, it, yeah. it, it is actively anti-union, especially the unions that are fighting for the actual working class. Uh, like, the... Uh, today, uh, 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 like, as of recording this, like, an hour and a half ago, the... Um, there is a, a Tory MP who used to be a Labour MP until 2018, ah. has just been made like the vice chair of the Tory party. And he's like a Ooh. obviously a dog shit guy, but it's a really good demonstration of how like the Labour is now just the red Tories. Um Tory now comes in red. Um Ooh. they um these these massive unions, my point is, like it is again a neoliberalization of everything and it's a neoliberalization of unions where they get to just be a massive corporate structure competing in like a free market of unions yeah <laughs> like, and- <laughs> they, they're trying to like compete to offer workers the best thing and like oh we're most likely to succeed at our demands because we have the most workers behind us but like practically everyone knows that the what they're actually going to get for the workers who are with them is dog shit like yeah um my friend was talking to a nurse at one of these marches uh on the 1st of feb and she was just saying like she was with unison and then they said that what they were like actually pushing for was was still like under inflation and still like it just just yeah. wouldn't be worthwhile at all. So she's changing to be with the Royal College of Nursing instead. Um, yeah, we have we had enormous yellow unions in the UK.
4: It's a real issue facing British labour organising. Um, we're going to talk more about that and the future of organising in the UK in the next episode. Uh, for now, this has been It Could Happen Here. You can find us in the usual places on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, That's the British Empire.
2: and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
9: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests.
4: It's It Could Happen Here, a podcast where I think Turf Island is legitimately my only remaining British show. I think I've gone through basically every other one. So, yeah, welcome. Welcome to us talking about Turf Islands. Uh, This is part two of our interview with Sophie from Mars. And yeah, we're going to talk about how to make the UK less shit. Yay the u.s has gotten to a point like a, a like a level of unionization that decreases every year to the point where like it's people think of just like being in any union as like a socialist position and it's like guys i i i have really bad news i for wish. you about I yeah like, wish. like it's it's really not that yeah and yeah but 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 i i, th- I think there's this there's also this sort of like I don't know. Like one 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 of the things you you have to deal with when when you're dealing with the with, like really very large unions. They don't do anything. Like this is a thing in China that happens constantly. Is like yeah. China technically is one of the world's largest unions. It it like the the last the last time that union did anything was actually weirdly the last time that union did anything was in, was during Tiananmen and then. Ever since then, they have done literally jack shit like Makes everyone sense. was like, oh, my fucking God. Uh, hold on. All right, all right, <laughs> uh, oh, no. But like, yeah, you, you you get these things that are like technically unions, but, you know, they don't do anything. They cooperate with bosses. They also and this is something you also see in the U.S., well, you don't really see this in China. You don't see this in China because there's, they have one trade union federation. Like they have a, they have a state trade union federation. But you yeah. see this in the US a lot where you get these really shitty things where like so someone will be organizing union campaign and like another union will come will like swoop in and be like, "Ah, hey, look at these people. Like, we'll we'll give you like a better cut. And, and they're doing this like basically because at, at, like the. the, the, the OK, the, the, there, there are there are unions that are like. Act, there are unions that are actually unions, which is to say, like there, there are there are unions that are sort of instruments of the working class and are sort of organizational yeah. tools. And then there are unions that are like, uh, we're forming a union so we can increase our member roles so we can like, you know, like in insofar as we're interested in expanding, we're interested in expanding because if we expand more, people will pay money into our bureaucracy, and that's a real, like that, that's a real issue. And and I I don't know, like it, it's it's interesting, it, it, it's interesting to me to see whether the the sort of one day strikes that have been happening in the uk kind of like i don't know is not the right word but well
5: i if we're gonna if we, if we if we're discussing what should happen what's gonna happen next um and, and i mean again you don't know when this podcast is going to come out so like it could, yeah, it could be that i I'm, knows.
4: it could like be I, I might offer some
5: predictions here and you might be able to like just look at the uk news and directly be like ah, sophie was full of shit um but like also we should talk about young people in a minute because that's like pretty crucial to understanding uk politics but um but uh the the government right now like i said before about sunak like he's trying to put in these massively authoritarian policies because he's realizing that like without them you can't do neoliberalism effectively And one of them is like, like I said about the PCSC bill, which was already in the works before Sunak came in. But like now it's come, you know, now it's come through and they're doing like a second wave of trying to do it. They have the online safety bill, which is not for anyone to be safe online. It's trying to like control freedom of the press basically like it's 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 most extreme proposal is basically that like people who are anti-capitalist and who are reporting on the news should be arrested uh, yep. normal british moment um uh and but one of these ones is he's trying to just ban strikes like he's effectively yeah. trying to ban strikes the the technical mechanism of it is that they are bringing in a bill that will demand a minimum level of service for certain industries um if the it, like it, and and it doesn't say what those minimum levels would be, but the the MPs can decide on it later if they want, like set it to be whatever they want. And obviously they could set that minimum to just be complete normal service. Yep, yep. They but but even if they don't, like setting a minimum service yeah. defeats the point of a strike. And yep. I think that if we're talking about what what will happen next, we have this enough is enough movement right now. I'm not. I have mixed feelings about it. I have some some suspicions. Uh, I am. Not the biggest fan of electoral politics, and I do feel like it 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 has the whole hallmarks of something that could like launch a political party at any minute, and then it'll it'll yeah. it'll completely yeah, it'll die. Recuperate all energy that it has, and every other bit of energy that, like will will die off. Um, but I think that the response to legislation trying to ban strikes is probably going to be an escalation from these one and two day strikes into like yeah. holding out for as long as they possibly can to demand concessions from the government and then like once you're in that territory you're actually talking about you know do a worst for you you're actually like it's 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 as the as flow bots would say compassion as fast as you can go time um <laughs> <laughs> we're uh i i i think that the movement of, uni- of unions and class consciousness that's currently what rising in the uk is uh not going to respond by like lying down and taking it when the government tries to ban strikes i think that it's going yeah. to escalate and speaking of escalation is it time for ads yeah
4: uh, cool the, the, yeah they're gonna <laughs> the, look the, the the washington state highway patrol is going to escalate things right into your skull very quickly so <laughs> here's a
5: here's an ad for it. an escalating worsening uh crisis of cryptocurrency and buy sophie coin the uh the only oh, currency no. which
4: supports the working class <laughs> and we're back on this this is reminding me of the 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 the, the, the libcom oxidizable currency uh david harvey n f t thing oh he was so bad incredibly funny not not my fault that you're so uh, okay that, that, that is complete, that is a completely unrelated aside <laughs> yeah so let let, um, let, 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 let let us get back to yeah can I Play can strikes. I talk about young people for a minute? Yeah. Because I do. Yeah. Definitely. I think this is a
5: really important thing that is probably going to be me just like uh, info dumping at you for a little bit because yeah, I it. I feel very passionately about. It. I also think it's very important to understanding UK politics. It's that Britain hates young people so much. Like it's inconceivable to people who live in other countries how much the the media class, the political class, like the ruling class, like hates the young so fucking much like if only under 35s could have voted in any of our recent elections every borough in the uk would have been (laughs) labor that's less true now because our labor is uh, run by the fucking head of the crown prosecution service but like when it was corbyn it would have all been labor and then if if people over i think like 60 could vote it's like all conservative um like they, they hate young people because they know that like social revolution will come from young people, and they know that young people have like just a vastly different understanding of the world. This is another um, uh, Graber Graberism, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna grave out, like Graber said that like the that you could probably see that a revolution has taken place if one generation and the next generation effectively speak a different language like if their understanding of the world is so is completely irreconcilable mm-hmm. and i think that one one interesting thing about turf island is that like trans rights are a really clear manifestation of that where people under 35 are entirely in support of trans rights they're entirely in support of like self idea you know self determination of gender and like uh, improving the healthcare situation and like informed consent healthcare and everything and then people above that are like Practically entirely against it, and it's it's just like we have this we have this absolutely wild generational divide in the UK, and they've been trying to reign that like bring that under control with various policies for a long time. So Tony Blair um, must be destroyed at all costs. No, that's the IMF. Tony Blair. Multiple
4: things at the same time should, should go to jail in almost. a world
5: where no one else goes to jail. No. Yeah, that one that one works. Um, Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher's greatest achievement um had this speech where he was like education 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 and he was basically like we are going to make it so everyone goes to university and he also did a lot of other reforms to do with getting people into schools it was very it was it was it was contemporary with and very comparable to like bush's no child left behind kind of stuff Oh God! um so he did a lot of stuff to try to like Clamp down on youth, and also create a pipeline for for young people to get through high school and then go to university. Um, he also, like when I speak of, about clamping down on youth, uh, do you, are you,
4: Mia, are you familiar with the ASBO? Oh, is that, is that the the fucking Sonic Gun things? <laughs> we're thinking about a different we're thinking about a different like, no, 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 deranged no. british a, thing
5: this is a this is a policy measure it's just. it's not it's not a weapon it's um <laughs> i mean it is a weapon of class warfare but it's um it's the anti social behavior order and basically oh, like yeah. this is part of the UK's system of exclusions, right? Like we have a a, a system set up where young people can be excluded from a career path and like a a path to just like being a functional human being in society uh, at, at basically any moment, right? If a teacher takes against you, they think you're rude, they think you're misbehaving, they can exclude you. Then that goes onto your educational record. And then, you know, you might get a permanent exclusion, which is what we call being expelled from school now right and then that is like statistically sets people on a massive path towards winding up in like juvenile offense centers like uh because they've been kicked out of a school and other schools don't want to take a kid who's been kicked out of a school right and then then what are they doing with that time like there are no fucking youth centers there are no community centers like they've been all been completely destroyed by neo- neoliberalism um uh so like we have this system of exclusions and 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 ASBOs are a, a big part of that. So ASBO stands for Antisocial Behaviour Order. And basically it's like, it's not just like a warning. It's like, it, 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 it comes from, it's like, it again, is something that's going onto your permanent record. And if you then commit crimes, you're going to be punished more severely because you've been warned already. Um, it's like, it's, it, it, it was, it was, it was introduced and then, like, cheered on by the ghouls who run our country, like, because it was going to deal with chavs, which was our term for oh, young working class people. Um, it was just our pejorative for being young and poor. Um, but it, it obviously also was there to target, like, uh, young uh, young black kids, young brown kids, young traveler kids. Um, and, like... And, and that was, you know, that was Blair, like, clamping down on any kind of existence outside of the pipeline that he was setting up for just being in school. There was also this massive focus on, like, attendance came in around the same time, that, like, schools would mm-hmm. punish people for for, for having missed yep. any time at all. Like, when I was going to to high school, we had, like, uh, school assemblies where they would tell us about the importance of attendance, like, over and over and over again. Like, probably a hundred times a term, they Jesus. would tell people, that like, they would tell the kids that, like... Uh, attendance is the most important thing and like the difference in your grades will be enormous if you miss like a single lesson or a single week of school and they would like give awards to kids who had perfect oh, attendance. Oh yeah, we have that.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it's less and, deranged, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: and then like, um, so that was Blair. And like, it, it, it's continued to, to, to kind of intensify that same thing for a long time. But like very recently, this is again Sunak's authoritarian policies, we've brought in something called prevent now prevent is a a multifaceted um civilian surveillance program where basically people can be referred to prevent which is capitalist white supremacist western-centric uh (laughs) re-education it's a it's a re-education program it's it's if people are considered to be uh holding extremist views expressing extremist opinions then they can be referred to prevent now like a lot of the people in my kind of social circle uh, Will like meme about prevent because like All the language is about like making Extremist content or whatever and obviously That's what I do for a living um, But like But people would you know m- make a tweet About how they they think that like The Prime Minister's a dickhead and then be like Oh I'm gonna get referred to prevent And then it was noticeable that like actually no None of us are being referred to prevent right So like this isn't this isn't for us It's actually been put in place For two specific purposes i do know someone who's been i do know someone who knows someone who's been referred to prevent and the person they know who's been referred to prevent is a uh is a child right is a a teenager uh Mm -hmm. because she works with trans youth and like being referred to prevent is really there as a system to control uh muslim populations and young people like that's what it's really there to target and Trying to clamp down on young people expressing any kind, you know, the 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 Muslim side of that is it's that it has its own entire discussion you could have to do with Islamophobia and like terror and like yeah, there's the there's, a, there's a whole thing has, like you know the, yeah. the, the 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 complete unwillingness of the U S and U K and all the other states from to acknowledge that like. Uh, extremist islamic terror is right-wing terror so then you if you merge those categories you would see that actually the far right is the biggest threat to everyone all the time whatever this is a whole other thing young people in the uk are under constant like barrage under this constant barrage of like media pressure shaming stigmatism and it's because they they are expected to either get a degree and succeed and get your 100k a year salary job and whatever Or you are a piece of shit and you will go to jail. (laughs) And obviously the reality for most people is you're going to get your degree or drop out and then you're going to wind up working in some kind of service sector job, actually. Right. Or if you're lucky, a fairly easy like office job where you can quiet quit and just doss off all day. Right. But like. The 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 attacks on young people serves a very specific function, and it's because they're aware of that rebellion of the caring classes, and that they're they're aware of the social revolutionary potential of young people, and they're trying to stop it, like trying as hard as they can to stop yeah. it. And their mechanism for doing that is that there's this pipeline from birth until the end of your university degree, and then hope, and then allegedly you get a job, but you don't really, um, or else, as I say, you probably wind up in jail. Um, the, the university thing is also really, really interesting because Graeber, again, fucking everyone take a shot. Graeber pointed out that like revolution often comes out of cases where the population isn't looking at like uh, someone else gets some like uh, the, the population doesn't look at the ruling class getting everything and then getting nothing and think that's unjust, we should overthrow them. right. This is how ki- monarchy and, and, and kingdoms was able to per- perpetuate for such a long time. It's when they think that someone else who they consider comparable is getting something and they're not getting it. That's when they feel the injustice. And like, I think this education, education, education speech and this moment and this policy set that neoliberalism and and Blair and everyone since then has tried to kick into like kick into action is gonna turn out to be probably the biggest shooting themselves in the foot historically that we could measure. Because they've basically made it that every person like every young person in the UK must try to go to university not wanting to go to university is considered socially like backwards and like then people go to university and then we all find that there are not jobs in the uk for everyone who's gotten a degree because they've basically set up the whole country to be a diploma mill like the whole entire country has this pipeline of everyone's going to get a degree and then and then what because there aren't fucking jobs and that's going to create that sense that like we are not getting what we deserve um yeah, I think that the 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 the, the marketization and the, the the like opening up all these universities to be like profit-driven uh, diploma mills is is has radicalized an
4: enormous number of young people. Yeah, which I, which I think is really interesting because a lot of Tory policy and like you know like like one one of the, one of the things the Tories did right right after they came to power like right after two thousand eight was immediately went to war against sort of higher education right and immediately it started to doing these increase in fees and this is you know. This this is what produces the like 2010 like student movement, and yeah. and it's really interesting to me that like, it, it really kind of seems like I don't know if the, for them the cure was worse than the disease because like you know they, <laughs> they 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 survived 2008 right and there was a real moment where it looked like globally that the ruling class was not going to survive 2008 and that like they were they were all about to come down and okay so they survived that but like yeah it it really it really feels like they've sort of and this is a similar thing that's happened in the U S right which is like. It turns out if, 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 if you turn an entire class of your population into just like basic like ba- 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 basically basically the debt peons, uh, <laughs> those people get really, really, really pissed off yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know okay so you don't have a bunch of highly educated people who are very 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 angry at yeah. the people who force them to take Who's, out all of these lines as conservatives are like,
5: always pointing out have been through university which is a culture where they're going to be exposed to way more leftist ideas
4: <laughs> yeah i mean like like i, I, I like this is something I, th- I think about a lot which is like i i think i knew i knew one openly gay person in high school like there were zero trans people and I got I got to like the the first time. Well, I was at least my, one. Well, you know, <laughs> look, I I, I I had no idea. And the part of the reason I had no idea, like like the, the the first time I like met someone who was like openly trans was like literally the first time I walked onto campus. Yeah. And like like the one of the first people I meet was like a trans guy who fucking rips. Yeah. Uh, I hope Same he's, he's having a good day. Yeah. And like <laughs> like that, like, you know, and, and I I I, I, th- I think there's this tendency in the US particularly, there's this tendency to look at the university and look at like yeah, like obviously, if 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 you're going to school in the U.S. and also if you're going to school in the U.K., you, you are going to run into a Marxist professor who tries to break your strikes, right? Like that's a, that that's a thing that's true. Like yeah. there are a bunch of right wingers on campus. Like I went to yeah. the University of Chicago. I have seen my own fucking econ department.
5: Our but like, our, our movement of that is largely toughs. Like our yeah. Kathleen Stark or whoever, if you're familiar. Like yep, yep. Yeah, our right wing professors are almost always Tufts.
4: Yeah, but like, but like, you know, and, and there's there's this real tendency to sort of like completely disregard the university as like a a thing that can produce anything remotely leftist, and I and I think that's just wrong like there's there's there like there there was there a reason a whole bunch of the universities in the u.s were redesigned after 68 like there there, there yeah. there's there's a reason why like one of the if, if you're doing a military coup in a latin american country one of the first things you do is roll tanks onto college campuses yeah because if you yeah, don't totally. roll tanks onto the college campuses those students are going to fight you until like all of them are fucking dead like <laughs> yeah that's a you know like that that's like and, and as 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 much as you know you, you, you can even it's look at the up, like, Lula, um, what's it right? called like,
5: hippie hippies and hard hats thing right yeah the the the, the media image the conservatives created i think it was nixon like the 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 hippies and the blue collar working class are incompatible and cannot work together and and the hippies are all university educated effete liberals and working class people are conservative reactionaries and that's like largely stuck until you get actual class consciousness building like this is something we're seeing massively in the uk right now is like the 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 union the, the growing union movement like has so many uh, university-educated people involved in it because, like, as soon as you start developing class consciousness, that that notion you're talking about, like that, that universities can't produce something leftist, just like flies out the window massively.
4: Yeah, and I and I I, I think that's why in the U.S. there's like this massive effort to sort of like, I mean, I'm 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 just gonna call it a fucking psyop because it is but, like there's this massive psyop to get people to like not think that like being a barista. Is like a thing <laughs> that produces value, and it's like I'm going to beat you to death with a copy of. Syop is one. is one of, is one of these this. things.
5: That it's like it's like with serial killer, where, you, where, where if you're like if you're like, well, what's the difference between a serial killer and a, a, a cop who kills a bunch of people? The difference is that the cop will never be found guilty, right? Like once you yeah. start like once you start looking at what you could call a PSYOP, you're like, oh, the whole of capitalist media
4: is a PSYOP. <laughs> like yeah. But, but you know, I, I think the, the very specific thing here is like. Okay, if 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 you look at who is in the UAW right now, right? Mm. The UAW is composed of two kinds of people. It is composed of people the, the remaining people who work in the auto industry and it is composed of grad student unions. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I I I saw a statistic recently that I, I think it's true, although I wasn't able to verify it, which is that like thirty percent by volume of the UAW's total membership right now are are from are from workers in the University of California system. Like the you know the the, the 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 actual class configuration that 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 is happening right now is yeah. this very weird sort of alliance of industrial workers and then people and then people who've been like people people who are highly educated who've been like kicked into really shitty service jobs and that's a real like and that that's the reason I I I genuinely like I I think the reason you see so much of this sort of like like the the right wing populism around sort of like the productive like. Working class thing, is specifically because this is this is a genuinely very powerful political alliance. Even people like Lula, yeah. who like Lula, like fucking hated. Like you, you can you can go back and read like a million hilarious Lula quotes about like how much he hates fucking student radicals from like <laughs> 1973. But well, he like, was just
5: like a he, football fan guy, right? Like he was just yeah. Like, no, but like but yeah. even
4: even even after he becomes a labor leader, like he he, yeah. he he has he spends a whole bunch of time like kicking all the student Maoists out of his out of his like strikes and stuff, and like like he, he has this great line that was like the, the, this guy walks into the door. I looked at his hands, and they were perfectly smooth, and I said to, and I said to myself, this man is a Trotskyite. <laughs> <laughs> Which like even you know lula uh, who was like he was like the most
5: of the, like, like the guys left around the world there's the it's very like other trotskyites in the room with
4: you right now yeah <laughs> like... well I, to, 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 to to be to to be to it to be fair to be fair I mean, there he was the actually there are loads of trots actually yeah in the uk good.
5: it's much more like other maoists in the room with you right now yeah, that's true
4: <laughs> but like but like you know but like like even even lula like Basically had to abandon that completely because, you know, like the, the, it, it it turns out that like, you can't actually like, you know, as, as, as the sort of unions decayed in Brazil as they did everywhere else. I mean, Brazil Uh still has fairly large unions, but like Brazil, Brazil, the, the, the kind of industrial stuff that like existed in Brazil in like the eighties is gone. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's like, well, okay. Even, even now, like, yeah, his, his base has a bunch of like, it has, has, it has a bunch of just like university educated people working service jobs. Right. And you know, like there, there's no, there's no actual like. There, there, there's no version of a functional leftist political coalition that doesn't have that
5: and it's obviously it's, it's significant that two of the most prominent leftist theorists of the last like 20 years david graeber and mark fisher both worked in education
4: yeah right and, like, and, and
5: F- I, like fisher was pointing out the whole like second shift stuff kind of like we were talking about before with like reproductive labor and he was talking about how like Exhausted people are because they do their job, and then they, you know, and, and it's not it's it's not just women anymore. Like this 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 labor is expected of everyone. Uh, I mean, still disproportionately women and disproportionately yeah. women of color. But like, you know, he he was telling a story about like his uh colleagues working in a high school that they the, the the only time they could find to organize or first complain about their working conditions and then organize was like when they went to the pub after work together,
4: right? Yeah, well, I think it's also like I'm I'm pretty sure it's true. I know she would agree with, but like the the like. Those those were both people from working class families who went into academia, which is a very yeah. sort of like, I don't know, it's it's a it's, it's a very, like I guess, potent combination for how how you get people into radical politics. And, and I th- and I think this is yeah, again going back to sort of like Tony Blair shooting himself in the foot, which is like okay, so you you're now you're you're now forcing a bunch of working class people into universities, yeah, and then saddling them with student debt, and it's like. Yeah. <laughs> Huh. i wonder you I, will, w- I wonder what you the will get this an will have.
5: understanding of the world around you at the cost of becoming a debt peon which will make your understanding yeah. of the world around you a very radical one very quickly <laughs>
4: yeah and, and it's like okay like i like the there the, there is a certain extent to which millennials get sort of less radical over time but like if you look at the less radical over time it's like they go from autonomous to corbinites no I mean, and that's still yes, not great like, if you're like, like yes
5: <laughs> but like yeah, I As mean, far as it happens trends, it's people like becoming that, more conservative right? like, as they age is like largely not affecting millennials and gen z and like I think that I mean one of the most obvious things to point to is the climate crisis, right? Like yeah, previous yeah. generations were not growing up being like the world will not be here when I reach retirement age unless we act.
4: I don't think it's impossible for people to sell out. Like there there are still a limited number of sellout jobs you could take, right? But the problem is there's just there's there's not enough of them. In order to like actually buy people off on mass and like any other thing particularly was like you know the, the thing that's supposed to make you more conservative is property ownership and like who the fuck is going to buy a house like what, what, oh yeah what, what like <laughs> under under what circumstances yeah like
5: yeah I like, I <laughs> am past the age when my parents bought a house I am past the age when my grandparents bought a house and I know like one person who's bought a house my age who's like. Working for a like a privatized rail company and whose whose partner like works for the police. Like <laughs> oh boy. no one's getting houses.
4: Yeah, I mean like my I I was I was listening to my friends like who has a house it's like I have a friend who bought a condo. <laughs> yeah. But like but that's the thing, like that that's that 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 that, that, was, that was another thing that was like they, they got help for their parents and it's like help from your parents doesn't even get you a fucking house anymore. Like no shit that shit no, gets you a condo. <laughs>
5: I I got like I got like a little bit of money uh, after my dad died, and I, it was enough to partially help for my 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 surgery, and then like fight off like uh, rent debt for a few months, and that was all. And it just disappeared, right? It's yeah. like
4: yeah. yeah, and you know what I mean. I mean, I think I think like like Br- Br- Britain's inflation is somehow is worse, way worse than the U.S.'s, which is truly stunning. and makes me like want to cry because oh my god like
5: yeah 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 it's it's something else it's truly so economically the uk is and again, we have to just keep on coming back to the fact that it, it, Britain is just a smokescreen. Like, the whole of British society barely barely exists and is just, like, a collection of reactionary buzzwords. And then, like, a ton of people who are increasingly angrier and angrier about it. Um, I don't know. I had a really good conversation a little while ago with, like, an old woman who lives in my, like, neighborhood. Uh, we met through some, like, community project stuff. And she just came by while we were, like, hanging out on the stoop. And, um... Yeah, we were just talking about Boris Johnson. It was right after Boris Johnson had come in, and she was in like she was basically getting revolution pilled. Like she, <laughs> like like she was not at all a political person for as long as I'd known her. And then like it was just yet another of the like revolving door. Like like the the Tory party is currently running the boss rush strategy that they just like keep on swapping out Tory prime ministers yeah. as fast as they can. And like and 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 I I said to her like. When people realize that, by definition, no one will ever hold the office who respects what the office is allegedly for like serves the people or whatever when people realize that like it's not just that like coincidentally all of our prime ministers went to eton and all of those like when they were in when they were then in oxford they were in like the bullingdon boys club it's not a coincidence it's like that's the pipeline is how you get there like when people realize that and they realize that no one will ever hold the office of prime minister who is there to 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 serve the country They're going to realize that they have to take care of each other instead and we have to build something that that we have to we have to build society from the ground up. And she was like, yeah, (laughs) she was like, yeah, I I think that's what's literally happening in our community right now.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And I I think it's sort of encouraging because like. I don't know, like just the absolute wreckage that was Corbinism, just like the complete shit show of how that entire project went. Yeah, like I, 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 I know it's caused some people to sort of like, basically, like you know, every, 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 every successor generation in politics has like the person who used to be a Trotskyite who is now like a Labour minister or is now like a fucking Tory minister.
5: You're a uh, Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris who are both raised by Marxist Malka- yeah. academics. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, even like like uh, Google, I, I. Why am I blanking? Google who Bill De Blasio's wife is. Okay. <laughs> um, she 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 was she was she was one of the founding members of the Gohibi uh, River Collective. Oh wow. Yeah, like it, there's a lot of shit like that. I. <sighs> yeah, uh, but like yeah, you know, but like it. As much as this is a thing, I don't know. In 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 in, 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 in so far as it it seems like the UK has the potential to be something that's not this it's it seems like it's going. It, it it genuinely seems like it's going to be through labor and it's going to be through sort of street actions and organizing that's that's not taking place inside the labor party and i, no, I, I'm I think
5: hoping uh, like practically everyone i know who was invested in corbyn is now like no party could possibly solve the problems of the uk because they watched like a guy oh here's a great movie recommendation a very british coup if people haven't seen this and it's it's pretty obscure so you probably haven't but like it's it's just about a guy who is on the side of the working class becoming prime minister and then how the media like ass, like character assassinate him and have him removed from power and like it's almost beat for beat what happened to Corbyn and it was made in like the 90s um but like uh you know a guy comes along and floats like very mild social democrat policies and the entire media class says that he's going to like drag the country back to the '70s, and like there's there's, there's like um, uh, like soldier, like there are, there are like units in the army doing target practice on pictures of him, and like people openly declaring that they will assassinate him if he comes into power and shit like this. And it's just like and, and then like. People within the party work to sabotage his election. The election in 2017 was lost by like 2,000 votes, you know. And then it's pushed out and replaced by the worst imaginable neoliberal top top cop ghoul, Keir Starmer, um, and like that spectacle has radicalized people so hard. Like I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I know anyone who 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 supported Corbyn who now thinks that our problems can be solved without mass uprising, or at least like without union power, basically like kicking the shit out of the government. I don't, I like, yeah, I don't really, the, the UK is, we are, we are don't vote pilled. I think.
4: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, which I think is, yeah, I don't know. Like it,
10: it, 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 it,
4: It it, it it strikes me in my sort of, like, I don't know, my my cursory knowledge of British history that, like, the most effective sort of British left-wing political movements in a long time was the poll tax stuff in the 90s,
6: mm-hmm.
4: which was defeated, like, into, almost entirely by a combination oh, yeah. of street movements and, like, non-party organizing. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. The, the UK's in a very weird position where it's, like, I, I don't know if there's a way it could have been different, but it's, like, it, it very much looked like the, like like the sort of just like the incredibly furthest right like just like absolute most shit parts of british society we're going like far right parts of british society we're going to be in power forever but then some so, somehow they managed to do the thing that social democratic governments always do which is like they they they, they managed to produce a series of cl- of like changes in the in, in the UK's class structure such that like they produced an entire like like they, 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 like they, you know. Well, I mean, they, they, they got their worst nightmare, which is that they actually got into power and got to do all their policies. And it turns out, if you actually do all of their policies, the entire world implodes. Yeah. And without 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 some kind of functional opposition to make sure, if they don't literally like yeah. press press the destroy the economy button, they will Earlier press the destroy today, the economy Today there was a button. news
5: article that was like Sunak is going to raise uh, energy bills like forty percent in April. And it's
4: like, I I shared it just being
5: like, they're just daring the working class to overthrow them at this point. Like, it's it's not that, but like, I've seen the same take. um, The leftist journalist Owen Jones said a little while, like when Liz Truss was in, he was like, I'm pretty sure she's actually an undercover Trotskyite trying to initiate revolution (laughs) by doing the worst policies possible. (laughs) Like, it really feels like that sometimes, but it is just like, as you say, the nightmare of their politics, that like, they can't, they are just, um incapable of conceiving of the harm that they're doing and speaking of being incapable of conceiving of the harm that they're doing here's an ad for mm, raytheon i don't know something so when i said before about like the generational divide and how reactionary like older people in the uk are that applies to some of our like our older leftists as well so there is this like offshoot of the of cpgb the communist party of great britain called cpgb ml the communist Ah. party of great britain marxist leninist oh boy they are fascinating so basically (laughs) so basically there was uh let me just let me just let me just refresh my memory but like there was um there was a split from the uh from from cpgb uh a couple decades ago i think uh, where people were just like the, where where basically it was it was to do with the politics of like supporting North Korea and like there were some Maoists involved and shit like this. Um, there are some people who involved who have done some like wild stuff in leftist terms. Like there was there, there was someone who uh, was involved with the Spanish Civil War and then like moved to China and took like positions in Mao's government during the Cultural Revolution. Like, oh boy! <laughs> who is like now? I think the. Honorary president of CPGBML—that's um, Isabel Crook. But basically, what happened was um, when the C- when CPGB kind of sp- split apart in the 60s, one of the splinter groups was called the Revolutionary Marxist Leninist League, and then oh. and then that immediately splintered as well, and they <laughs> and then they had a-, a thing called the Association of Communist Workers, and that was founded <laughs> by Harpel Bra. Now this is the Bear in mind the bras for a second. B-R-A-R, because this is really interesting. Um, so basically, <laughs> Harpal Bra, um, yeah, he's he's old as dirt now. He's still kicking around. He does some, like, um, uh, like VOD chats with, like, uh, everyone's favorite real, je- je- definitely real communist Caleb Morpin. Um, and the bras, because of their role in this, like, splinter group and then the founding of CPGBML... That it's kind of like a dynastic family of communists like the- <laughs> so Harpal oh bra is the father of jyoti bra who's like a notorious turf communist and and like she isn't officially uh in charge of cpg bml but like apparently nothing nothing is allowed that goes against her so it's like they've they've actually put a dynasty in in, in place <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah Um, but as I say, that's all, that's all part of the fact that like the, um, the, the, the older people in the UK are just like shockingly reactionary. Um, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Like they're trying to do like, uh, working class organizing around how much they hate trans people. Uh, It's really good.
4: (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I'll say about the U S which is that like, like we don't have as many, like there are lib turfs, but like the lib turfs don't really sort of, like... Like, they're, 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 they're kind of walled off from, like... Turfism is a very British
5: rest. thing. I don't, like, I... Yeah, like... I've seen like, Americans like, worry about it a lot. I don't think it's going to take off with you guys because we have a politics of British exceptionalism which is directly contrasted to US politics. Like, it's very similar to, like, how can, like Canadian liberals work, where, like, everything every place where we can be progressive we try to pride ourselves on not being as bad as the u.s and so like the 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 specter of the gop not only like does not only do turfs literally receive money from far-right evangelical christian groups uh from the u.s but like the fact that the gp the the gop is there gives like supposed feminists in the uk this cover to pretend they're still progressives because like this they support abortion until a candidate comes along who hates trans people uh yep. <laughs> who also wants yep. to you know uh, to to make abortion illegal um i don't think that i don't know i i could be proven wrong about this but i don't think that like uh turfs are gonna get a foothold in the u.s in the same way because you you're like reactionaries just function a bit a bit differently and like the trying to like um divide the progressive left with turfs is a very conscious strategy that's kind of like been designed and constructed for the uk like it's it's yeah it's liberals who are like we're so progressive because we're not the us who are then amenable to turf talking points in the uk uh who are really really out of touch and again there's like the generational thing but like i think that i think that turf island will continue to be notoriously turf island like I think that turfism will continue to be a very, very, very British phenomenon. Um, I have seen what you're talking about with, like, swerfs in the U.S., because, like...
4: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I will say, like, the, the other country I think is particularly really bad with this is Mexico has an enormous turf problem, like, in ways that are incredibly <laughs> yeah. dangerous. for. We, yeah, we've I've talked about that. this on this podcast, but, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very bleak um yeah i don't know the u.s yeah the u.s the danger is mostly from the far right and also from people like who who are like libs but who are like really like like i don't know like new york times collaborator types yeah 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 yeah. i mean it's
5: the same thing here Uh, we have like um i don't know if you know the comedian rob delaney um he's american but he moved to the uk and he's been you know, fighting for a long time alongside, like, union movements. I I think he's, mo- like, mostly a liberal. Like, he calls himself a socialist, but I don't think that he's... I don't think he would call himself a communist or anything like this. Um, but, like, he said that when he moved to the UK, he was like, you're always uh, pointing to American media by being like, look how bad Fox News is, but truly every outlet of the uk media is fox news (laughs)
4: like (laughs) yeah yeah the uk media is like somehow more fucked than the american media which is really amazing uh, that has to do with like
5: that 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 ties in
4: really strongly with
5: our um with our tradition of uh i was gonna say lovable public nonsense again no that's not it other bad thing other evil thing tony black there it is um yeah Tony Blair was so close with Rupert Murdoch that he literally fucked Rupert Murdoch's wife. He's literally like he's the godfather of Rupert Murdoch's kids. Or the other way around, I can't remember. Like, he is he is like that with Rupert Murdoch. There's a famous picture of like Blair reading the Sun and oh, fuck the Sun. Um, reading the Sun newspaper and like the the headline is like we love Blair or whatever. Um, side, sidebar briefly, my uncle died in the Hillsborough disaster. If people aren't familiar with oh, that, Jesus I Christ. won't explain the whole thing. But like
6: oh, the,
5: the the passion with which I want the the Sun newspaper destroyed in the most literal sense possible. Yeah, fucking come and arrest me. I will I will stand up in court and say this is on behalf of my goddamn family. Uh, I am allowed to have this opinion. <laughs> um, but like, but like the, the, the way that like new labor was able to tie it all together as this, like the progressive newspapers and the reactionary newspapers, it's all working for the ruling class. And then like neoliberalism, you know, benefits them enormously. So like we have yep. where before we had the, the kind of faintest illusion of there being like a left-wing media and a right-wing media. Now it's like, there's the ruling class media. And then there are like, Tiny, tiny, tiny independent leftist media sources, right? There's like yeah. YouTubers like me. There's like novara Media. There's Owen Jones. Oh, fucking
4: libs, by the there way. Are, yeah, <laughs> there are like there like- are like
5: <laughs> Trotskyites, like making yeah. newspapers to fund their like, well, mostly to fund making more newspapers, to be honest. But like you know, <laughs> um you know, and, and they're they're just t- these tiny little crumbs, yeah. and the rest of the media yeah. is just fucking dog shit to the point where like it's actually quite funny like it's gotten to the point where they're complacent because they're so not used to dealing with anything that represents the working class that they like they recently had mick lynch the head of the rmt union on a bunch of different like uk talk shows where they were they were expecting to be able to like gotcha him with with the most transparent bullshit um yeah richard madeley said to him like what about the spirit of Christmas? Your strikes oh, are affecting people's that. ability yeah. to go home and see their family. And he was like, what about workers getting paid better, dickhead? And it was just like, it was just like game over immediately. Yeah. Like they are so not used to talking to anyone who cares about the working class that when someone, like it just, not even an especially radical, just like a union leader comes on to their show. He he just owns them. Like he just butters their goddamn biscuits. Like it's, it's amazing.
4: <laughs> yeah. We, we, we had this with the rail strike where like, like I remember, was it Business Insider? It was it was one of the business press guys had had someone. They, they were like they were talking to like a rail worker. Yeah, and you can see on air this guy. Realizing that these people have zero days off a year and going, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, was yeah, just Sort of like, like even even the like business class guys were like, wait, hold on, like, what, what, what do you mean you have zero days off a year? Like, what? <laughs>
5: it's like, yeah, there's like a human empathy that like they that they are not expecting to be a problem for them because like they're all parasitic fucking ghouls and then like they come into contact but they've been lied to about the the lives that that the working class have to live yeah and then a working class person comes on and just tells them like oh no it's like this and they're like oh
4: (laughs) shit we should do
5: something (laughs) about that."
4: (laughs) yeah it's like yeah and that's sort of like i don't know that that, that's that's sort of that's sort of shield like it's kind of the kind of insulation that that gets built up just (laughs) yeah uh do you do you have anything else you want to say and then
5: Uh, also plug stuff F- fuck the police, uh, <laughs> um listen to red planet uh yeah okay i'm plugging stuff i'm gonna say i'm sophie from mars i make video essays on youtube about, about politics philosophy sometimes about media uh i did a little bit about yay going on info wars and all his anti-semitism and stuff pretty recently uh, i'm doing something about climate doomerism and how i believe that the world is not ending it's just the collapse of the imperial core and people are projecting the inability to get starbucks and deliveroo as uh, the apocalypse um <laughs> that should be out sometime soonish but what i really want you it could happen here listener to check out is red planet because i think you'll really like it it's a uh it's a weekly uh leftist round table where we talk about how to make the world a better place um it's every sunday 8 p.m to 11 p.m uk time please Google to figure out what that is for you. It's on twitch.tv slash red planet live. And we also have a podcast feed. If you want to catch up on all the archive episodes should be available wherever podcasts are sold. Um, it's called red planet and it's a good time. And we also, I mean, we have a lot of, we, we have some, some, some solid overlap with it could happen here. Actually. We recently interviewed Maya crime you as well. <laughs> like, uh, <yes>. uh, <laughs> so, you uh, know, if you want it, more Maya content, we had a her, good chat with us. <laughs> And I can't imagine you don't, because she's delightful. <laughs> it,
4: it, wonder, wonderful person. <laughs> wonderful wonderful little kitty cat. Uh, yeah, this, this is what could happen here. You can find us in the places. Uh, you can wage a eternal war against the British Imperialist ruling class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> uh, you can do this from your home.
5: Yep. I've uh, Cool. I've been Sophie. I've been playing with a Browning 364 Switchblade. Uh, only in my house, where it is legal to have it. Um <laughs> And I apologize again to Daniel for all the clicking noises.
9: <laughs> Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's outspoken network for a year, and what a year it has been! Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests.
2: Culture, and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Oh, hi! I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels.
11: Hello, everyone, and welcome to It Could Happen here. Uh, once again, hosted by myself, Andrew, uh, along with the rest of the crew.
6: Mia uh,
11: and James. All right. And today, I want to take a minute to talk about Ubuntu and not the Linux software, but <laughs> the African <laughs> philosophy. Ubuntu is a philosophical concept, for those who don't know, derived from some of the diverse and dispersed indigenous traditions of the roughly 360 million Bantu-speaking peoples of Africa. Bantu, coming from the Zulu word for people, is a language family spoken by approximately 400 distinct ethnic groups and split into approximately 440 and 680 distinct languages dialects born as a result of the Great Bantu migrations that occurred in two major waves about 3,000 to 2,000 years ago across Central, East, and South Africa. Contrary to the maxim, I think, therefore, I am, Ubuntu, roughly translated from the Guni Bantu languages like Osa and Zulu, means humanity, and more specifically, humanity towards others. I am because you are. There are, of course, various names for the concept from language to language and ethnic group to ethnic group, including Boto, Muntu, Umundu, Bato, Utu, etc. But Ubuntu is definitely the most prominent and internationally recognized. According to the African Journal of Social Work, Ubuntu is a collection of values and practices that people of Africa, or of African origin, view as making people authentic human beings. While the nuances of these values and practices vary across different ethnic groups, they all point to one thing. An authentic individual human being is part of a larger and more significant relational, communal, societal, environmental, and spiritual world. This, of course, is... Not unique to Africa, um, or to any specific culture, or to any specific ethnic group. I think we'll find these sort of mirroring uh, ideas uh, in a variety of contexts, because I think it really is something that's fundamentally human. But I think it is good to look at how these ideas have manifested in those more specific contexts. I mean, in the oral literature, of South Africa, Ubuntu has been in existence from as early as the mid-19th century. Uh, The reported translations for the term have covered the field of human nature, humanness, humanity, virtue, goodness, and kindness. And so it's meant to be a sort of a parallel to the abstract idea of humanity. As a philosophy or as a worldview, uh, Ubuntu really was popularized in the beginning of the 1950s most notably in the writings of Jordan Kush Gubane, published in the African Drum Magazine. From then into the 1970s, Ubuntu began to be used as a specific form of African humanism, because, of course, in that 60s and 70s period, you had a lot of Afrocentric and Pan-African and uh, Black Power ideas coming to prominence around the world. This, of course, also coincided with the period of decolonization or rather formal political independence was taking place in the 1960s uh, and this desire for these newly independent countries to pursue uh, Africanization, to sort of let go of some of the symbolic aspects of colonial rule. Of course, that process has not really been complete. And in many ways, the post-colonial status is Equivalent to the colonial status, but in some ways, some leaders were trying to pursue a sort of a new African-specific humanism as a philosophy for the burgeoning countries at the time.
6: Is this a part of the episode where we tell everyone to read Fanon again?
11: Of course, <laughs> <laughs> read Fanon, read Césaire. What I found interesting is that this this term Ubuntu, this idea of Ubuntu particularly found its uh it was particularly picked up in Zimbabwe and in South Africa in a very specific context where there was a transition to majority rule. In nineteen eighty Ubuntuism or Hunhuism was presented as the political ideology of uh, newly independent Zimbabwe. Um a guy named Stan Lake, JWT Samkange, um published a treatise basically on who is or Ubuntuism, or Zimbabwe indigenous political philosophy. And he was basically trying to outline what the three major maxims that this philosophy should be. Uh, of course, I would note that his interpretation being a statesman was notably hierarchical. But for the reasons I will go into a bit later, I don't believe that makes the core of Ubuntu necessarily hierarchical. Uh, but the three maxims that he had in mind for Ubuntuism or Huism was that to be human is to affirm one's humanity by recognizing humanity of others and on that basis, establishing respectful human relations with them. The second maxim means that if and when one is faced with a decisive choice between wealth and the preservation of life of another human being, then one should opt for the preservation of life. And then the third maxim um, says that the king owed his status, including all the powers associated with it, to the will of the people under him. As I think that's where you get most prominently the sense of um, hierarchy that would pervade certain interpretations of Ubuntu. This idea of a sort of a benevolent rulership. Uh, that these benevolent statesmen and kings and, well, prime ministers or presidents that they would, uh, they would just exercise in the will of the people. And of course, this is a mythology that is interpreted and reinterpreted across various different regimes. In South Africa in the nineteen nineties, Ubuntu as a concept was used as sort of a guiding ideal for the transition from apartheid to majority rule. I think. Around this time is when the international community started to hear more about the term Ubuntu, Uh, particularly as it appears in the epilogue of the Interim Constitution of South Africa, published in 1993. There's a need for understanding, but not for vengeance. A need for reparation, but not for retaliation. A need for Ubuntu, but not for victimization. End quote. Of course, as we see in South Africa today, that didn't play out very well. Um, the understanding has not uh, reached that point. Reparations has not fully been achieved. Um, and there's, a, I would say, a distinct lack of Ubuntu. Yeah, they kind of brought in Bank of America instead, <laughs> which <laughs>
6: didn't go great. <laughs> All right, yeah. They do, it's very, um, it's very big. Uh, oh, it, it, in Kenya, Rwanda, it's, Ubumuntu, I think, Um, but like you'll see the phrase or that that word a lot around Rwanda, and like if you go to the Kigali Genocide Memorial Museum, you'll see it a lot there, Um, and like that is a country that has uh, with some authoritarian issues, like has put aside the differences which had previously uh, allowed the genocide to happen. I guess I think that's fair to say. Yes,
11: yes, that's what the um, Tutsi and the Hutu, yeah yeah and the yeah. Twa who often get
6: missed out um the the yeah but uh,
11: they yeah really that a tragedy
6: it, yeah terrible terrible thing if if people ever go to Rwanda I would highly recommend going to Rwanda like the Kigali Genocide Memorial Museum is an important thing to it's a very very well curated museum of yeah like you said a terrible terrible thing that happened
11: in South Africa um, the transition to democracy and. Nelson Mandela's presidency in 1994, um, like I said, really brought the term to more well-known outside use. Um, And one of the people who was a main main proponent of that was Desmond Tutu, who was the chairman of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission and also um, a preacher. He sort of uh, advocated... Uh, an Ubuntu theology that was really formative in the development of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, He sort of moved the idea of Ubuntu from simply an African philosophy based on African values of community and kinship to Christian values and identity with the creator God. Um was a sort of a strategy in an attempt to recover from the pains and brokenness of apartheid, um, you know, anchoring Ubuntu into these into the Christian ideals of forgiveness and reconciliation as gifts from God for peaceful, communal know, coexistence. Um, and I'm hopefully not being too offensive when I say this. Um, to me, that's a quintessential example of how Christian pacification hampers decolonization efforts because I've seen often that, that Christian notion of forgiveness and reconciliation turns the blame onto the victims for not forgiving and expects little to nothing from the offender except maybe an apology. Often it's not even any restitution or reparations. And so for all the talk of Ubuntu, uh, theological Ubuntu and otherwise, um, situation in South Africa is still very much whack. And I think that, that idea that, oh, well, this is, it's in the past, it's over, get over it kind of thing is problematic and it's, something that needs to be resolved, the thing sort of decolonization is going to take place, right? So putting aside the theological applications, the somewhat problematic theological applications, the Ubuntu worldview is echoed in some senses worldwide. You know, social ecology, Buen Vivir, mutual aid—all these concepts point to our interconnectedness as people, uh, and really point to the interconnectedness that we have as people. That our systems are most certainly not built to support. We see that. We see that in capitalism. You know, capitalism doesn't embrace the interconnectedness of our people. It places us in opposition with one another. It atomizes us. It individualizes us. It alienates us from people, uh, from ourselves, and from others. So we must compete and stuff for the sake of survival. Um, alienation, of course, in a capitalist context, referring to our separation of our abilities from ourselves, making us into mere tools for the use and benefit of our bosses. And, you know, the workplace is definitely not something that we have is that is based on mutual aid or ubuntu. You know, rather than working together, working harmoniously, having access to the means of production uh, and sharing in it equally. Um, a place and situation of a feud, of competition, of struggling constantly uh, and being squeezed and wrung out for whatever uh, our bosses can get from us.
6: Yeah, it's, when you said like earlier that uh, one of the key tenets was re- like recognizing humanity and other people affirms your own humanity... Um, I might be paraphrasing that, but like that's exactly yeah. what capitalism doesn't do. It just sees people as, as, a, as a, like a, a tool to to create more capital or to create more more income. Like it, it doesn't recognize humanity. It it sees you as a means, not an end, Right.
11: Exactly. And I mean, unlike in a communal system where your service to others, you know, it's mutual, it's reciprocal, it's voluntary. We find ourselves in a situation where we must give away our labor, our time, and really our whole lives just to survive. But that giving is not done uh, out of the goodness of our hearts or <laughs> yeah. or as part of a system, a, a, a sort of a network of supports, a safety net uh, or anything. It's just clawing towards survival, you know, disconnected from the well-being of the whole.
6: Yeah, very much so.
11: Everything around us has been, you know, manufactured, it's been transported, it's been assembled and sold. By other people right people just like us people, workers just like us um those people have lives just like ours they have all the same struggles that we do um but instead of relating to these people instead of freely sharing the fruits of our labor we relating to the things that we have to buy and we don't see the working people behind them yeah i think another aspect of it uh, is that which i find particularly strange about, you know, the Hunhuism or Ubuntuism that um, Sam Kange was trying to uh, advocate, is that I don't believe that Ubuntu or mutual aid um, or any of the principles that Ubuntu espouses is something that the state is compatible with. Um, I don't think the state is compatible with the acknowledgement of one's responsibility to their fellow humans and the world around them. You know, the state is built on exclusion, on domination, on uh, deprivation, and the hierarchical division of the state, generating this sort of inequality in decision-making power and influence over our own affairs. It's about depriving certain people and elevating others, whereas Ubuntu is supposed to be about the importance of the humanity of both the individual and the community and about how all people are connected in a way that is meant to support and add to and contribute and glean and service one another, if that makes sense. You don't like the idea of this sort of community where everyone is giving and sharing and taking and everybody has something to contribute to this human whole. I feel like there's something that's lost when that whole is disrupted by Certain people being elevated to a status of having more power uh, over others. I mean, part of that humanity has to entail freedom to self-organize, freedom to associate, freedom to disassociate, decision-making power, autonomy. You know, otherwise, what kind of humanity is that really? How can people access their full humanity in themselves if they're being deprived by others? And how can those others who are depriving certain people have access to their full humanity when they're depriving others. If you get what I'm saying.
6: Yeah, yeah. I think that's perfectly right.
11: Yeah. And I mean, pretty much the same thing with um the system. I mean with, like, with the capitalism, with the state, I mean with sociatorial patriarchy, which also elevates some people above others and denies those marginalized others full access to their humanity. Um, all of us are restricted in some ways from understanding ourselves uh in ourselves and through others. By the ideology and system of patriarchy. And of course, this goes without saying, but what could be more incompatible with Ubuntu than colonialism? You know, it doesn't simply deny the humanity of those it exploits, but it also strips the humanity of the exploiters. I mean, as Emma Cesaire, who I referenced earlier, wrote in Discourse on Colonialism colonization works to de civilize the colonizer. To brutalize him in the, sense of the, in the true sense of the word. To degrade him and to awaken him to buried ex- instincts. To covetousness, violence, race hatred, and moral relativism. And we must show that each time a head is cut off or an eye put out in Vietnam and in France, they accept the fact. Each time a little girl is assaulted and in France, they accept the fact. Each time a Madagascan is tortured and in France, they accept the fact. Civilization acquires another dead weight. A universal regression takes place. A gangrene sets in. A center of infection begins to spread. And that at the end of all these treaties treaties that have been violated, all these lies that have been propagated, all these punitive expeditions that have been tolerated, all these prisoners who have been tied up and interrogated, all these patriots who have been tortured, at the end of all the racial pride that has been encouraged, all the boastfulness that has been displayed a poison has been instilled into the veins of Europe and slowly but surely the continent proceeds towards savagery. Powerful words as usual from cesaire
6: yeah. <laughs> That was great. Yeah, That's very good.
11: Yeah. So I mean, I think there's a lot of potential in the interpretation of Ubuntu, right? Which is both a flaw and a strength. And when I get into the criticism a bit more, you'll see why But regardless, of course, there is value to be gleaned from indigenous understandings, there's power in finding our roots to secure our future, and whether in a partnership, an affinity group, an organization, a community, or beyond, this basic principle of recognizing the authentic individual human being as part of a larger and more significant relational, communal, societal, environmental, and spiritual world is vital. Process of social revolution of confronting the powerful through protests and occupations and reclamations and expropriations, in uh, refusing to cooperate with the powers to be through strikes and boycotts and mutinies and other forms of interaction, and in building new institutions like cooperatives and popular assemblies and libraries of things. All of those things, all those aspects of social revolution, allow us to assert ourselves to recognize the mutual and egalitarian connection of all people. You know, a person with Ubuntu is open and available to others. It's affirming to others. I feel threatened that others are able and good. And so by recognizing that with Ubuntu, you know, recognizing that you're part of a greater whole, that whole is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed. Uh, And so, Someone with Ubuntu, someone who recognizes the interconnectedness of all humanity, is someone who has to be engaged in some form of social revolution, who has to be engaged in trying to free people, help people free themselves, so that they can engage in their own humanity, and so add to your own humanity in turn. And when it comes to the commons, common ownership, you know, the reversal, the enclosure movement, socialization, whatever you want to call it, um that is also something that ultimately is about the bonds between people, uh, about the distribution of the means of production and of the fruits of all of our labor, so that all can enjoy so that all can have a vested interest in our collective prosperity. When it comes to you know community work, you know Ubuntu is about. This idea that we can work together, you know, in growing our food and distributing when we need. Um, this idea that being a mother or being a father, being a parent is not just about being that to your own biological children, but rather in recognizing that we are all connected in that way, it's it's like a it's like an understanding that there should not be this idea of orphans, right? This idea that we're all meant to look out for each other, that no person is meant to be cut off from the sort of care um, that is necessary for Korean into a fully realized person. I mean, even in the realm of education, you see potential applications of Ubuntu in recognizing that everyone has different skills and strengths, that people are not isolated and that through mutual support, they can help each other to complete themselves. As Audrey Tang argues, I mean, I think there needs to be an education that recognizes uh, the importance of community, societal, and environmental well-being. Uh, one that emphasizes the connection between all those things. One that involves interaction, participation, um, recognition, respect, and inclusion as core tenants of the learning process. Um, of students learning from facilitators and of facilitators learning from students. Of recognizing that we hold both positions and that those positions are held from the moment we're born to the moment we eventually pass on. As rich as the potential of Ubuntu may be. I don't want to put it out as if it's some sort of like flawless and perfect philosophy, right? It's not above critique. It's not immune, as I mentioned before, to hierarchical interpretations and applications. It's very much ripe for liberal sensibilities, as we've seen departments of state speaking of Ubuntu diplomacy um, and Ubuntu foreign policy uh, and that sort of thing. Um Sam Kange's idea that you know part of Ubuntu is that the king owes a status, including all the powers associated with it, to the will the people under him. I mean right now, and for a while now, Ubuntu has not had a, a single solid framework of what exactly it entails, what it makes up, what it doesn't. Um, there's still a lot of fuzziness and inconsistency within different people's interpretations of the definition of Ubuntu. Uh, as one scholar, Nyasha Mboti, has noted, there's an interpretation, a certain interpretation of Ubuntu that sees Africans as you know, naturally interdependent and harmony-seeking, that humanity is given to a person by and through other persons. But there's a sort of a trap in that because humanity is also pretty messy. The relationships between, between people can also be very messy. It's not all sunshine and rainbows, you know. A broken relationship is as authentically human as a harmonious relationship, you know. A broken relationship can also be more ethical than a harmonious relationship. Um, Boti points to, for example, the freedom that follows from a break from oppression, that follows from a break from a relationship of domination to one of freedom. And of course, this idea that harmonious relationships are incapable of being oppressive is false, you know. A harmonious relationship can be quite oppressive um, in the dynamics between people that are hidden under that veil of hunky-dory, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot to Ubuntu. There's a lot of good to be gleaned, a lot of... uh, potential pitfalls to be avoided um so you know take what's of value leave what's not engage critically what's your plans and have a good night
9: Listen to Woke Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, And invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Oh, hi! I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all.
6: Hi everyone, and uh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast which uh, by popular demand today is about livestock as we will be going forward. Uh, it's me, it's Garrison, uh, and we're talking about species of sheep. Uh, do Not not really, we're not talking about species of sheep, much not to yet. my disappointment. Not yet, but that will be coming. We're going to be getting into clins, texels, uh, mules, that kind, of, that kind of thing, big sheep stuff. But no, today we're actually uh, joined by John, and John has uh, been... Subjected to my weird introduction, but we're not—we're not talking about sheep today. We're talking about active transport infrastructure, and we're talking about how cities tend to build that in certain communities and not in others. So, welcome to the show, John.
10: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll say that my my partner would have been overjoyed if the podcast was actually about species
6: of sheep. So
10: <laughs> <laughs> uh, She's tired of hearing me talk about bikes, I'm sure. So, but here we are. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm John Stalen. I'm an assistant professor at uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro.
6: Great. Yeah. Um, so, I think to start off with, if if you could kind of outline uh, what sort of like, I guess I guess people might not be familiar at all with bike infrastructure. Certainly, um, if they live in some parts of the US or like more rural areas, um, sort of what it looks like and what. Cities have been doing in the last few years building bike infrastructure, and then how that relates to the, I guess, the income disparities within cities.
10: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big question. Uh, it's something that I tackled in my book, uh, which came out in 2019, but then I haven't I haven't kept up with it quite as much. I've been trying to start working on, working on other projects, but you know, I keep I keep tabs on things a little bit Um, i mean basically if we're talking about the the standard rundown of infrastructure the the i would say the most common thing that people think about and probably the most common thing that's built in part because it's quite cheap uh especially over the say the last 20 years is the the bike lane uh you know a bike lane is usually about three to five feet wide. Uh, and it's in to the far right of the roadway. If you're in the United States or, you know, if you're driving on the right, um, tends to be where glass collects tends to be where car doors are. Um, it, and so that nevertheless was, you know, very common, uh, in places that were building bicycle infrastructure, that's what was being built. In, I would say, the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a push to do more what people might call Dutch style uh, protected bike lanes. Um, Either they're protected by a buffer of uh, kind of plastic posts that don't prevent an emergency vehicle from kind of getting where it needs to go, but also don't prevent drivers from just driving into the bike lane, really. Um, so you'll see those and then, you know, parking protected bike lanes. So the protected bike lanes sort of became the big demand from, uh, bicycle infrastructure planning practitioners, especially in cities like Portland's, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, Chicago, New York city, et cetera, et cetera, something that was actually protected by a curb. usually. Really, usually it's still uh, like a some kind of a plastic curb, right, or cars, right, and you're not seeing a lot of, um, you know, concrete or brick curb work like you'll see in in the Netherlands or something like that. And then, interestingly enough, another piece of infrastructure that there was a funny kind of mea culpa, or not mea culpa, but um, a uh, reevaluation of it, it was the Chero. Uh, which is just a sort of a Chevron symbol in the middle of a car lane intended to remind drivers that cyclists are allowed to be there, uh, but sort of put cyclists in the location where they would sort of garner the most hatred. And there was a recent, recent editorial from Dave Snyder of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. who's was a big, big pioneer, just in general, bicycle infrastructure. I interviewed him for my dissertation and he, uh, he talked about how the, they don't work. That, that was a mistake. It was a mistake kind of um, splitting the difference, making it seem like you didn't have to take any space away from cars in order to fit bikes into the roadway. So I don't know if that's kind of more yeah. than you wanted from that.
6: No, no, that's great, because I think a lot of folks might not have seen all these different things. Certainly, like uh, if, if you're like me and you ride your bike every day, you notice each of these different things, and some of them make you feel safer, some of them don't, and, and some of them are just kind of tokenistic. I think a lot of this kind of gets to a bigger discussion, which which is one maybe we can touch on, which is like who the city is for. Uh, when we're building cities in this country, certainly it seems like we built them around cars with, with a few exceptions, like older cities and stuff. And increasingly, like if you ask for space that and you are not a car, uh, then, you know, to include people wanting to live on the streets, right? Like cars have free places to go at night, but people don't. And so like... this reallocation of space i think gets to a bigger question which is yeah maybe something you could speak to
10: yeah so i mean the question of i think you could think of who both in terms of the mode of transport right it's very car dominant uh society right um (laughs) and car Car driving is even on the rise in places like Copenhagen, right? There's kind of a lot of fretting among bicycle advocates in, in Copenhagen about um, the rise of car usage. Um, so there's the, the the sort of the mode of transport, but, you know, cars aren't people, right? As you sort of pointed out just then. And then so there's another layer to it that intersects with it, which is cities being increasingly sort of oriented towards attracting higher income residents, right? Kind of creating an attractive urban environment. There's a, there's a kind of an intersection with the interest in attracting, um, kind of high tech or creative or knowledge intensive types of jobs, right? Your software programmers, you know, I think it was, um, Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel. I use this in lectures all the time. he said something like, um, you can't be for a high-tech, a creative city economy and not be pro-bike, right? So there's this there's this idea that, you know, may be a little bit spurious or it might be kind of um, loose causality, but there's this idea that the kinds of workers that you want in your city that are either going to take high-paying jobs and increase the property tax base or themselves create new startups, entrepreneurial energy, arts, culture, and uh and things like that, right? That they are they are attracted by bicycle infrastructure or bicycling or bicycle culture in 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 some respects. Um, So there's that that kind of the 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 irony of course is that those workers, you know, guilty i have a car right typically yeah. bring cars with them right and but, so yes maybe they don't want to use them on a daily basis like i don't use my car on a daily basis i don't use my car to get to work right um but they you know are often kind of having it both ways right in a, in a lot of ways in terms of you know buildings will be built with garages right and that's only recently starting to be eroded right as just a you know a one to one parking ratio in a at a transit connected uh, building,
6: yeah. And so when we're talking about it, the combination of these two things, right? Like affluent areas or cities trying to attract affluent people and cities trying to build bike infrastructure. And something that I've observed where I live, which is San Diego, is that we've built a lot of bike lanes, but only connecting privileged communities to places where people do high income work. And it seems like increasingly, like, riding your bike safely is a privilege uh, that's, that's only afforded to a certain group of people. Is that something that's broader than just in, in my town?
10: I'd say so. I mean, I think you see this in, um, in where I did a lot of my research, the San Francisco Bay area, also did research in in Philadelphia and, and Detroit and Austin as well. That's not in the book, but yeah, that's, it's common. And there's a few different, there's kind of a, there's a, degree of uh cumulative causality as we would say in economic geography right you have it going back to say the 1990s you had bicycle advocates primarily uh recreational primarily middle class largely white recreational cyclists or and you start to see um, participants in bicycle advocacy organizations also being kind of bicycle commuters, um, the kinds of jobs that were growing in urban centers in the 1990s and 2000s, or, you know, the the first decade of this millennium, right. Um, are the kinds of, you know, if not high tech uh, the sort of uh, professional, technical type of employment, right? Growing in urban centers, um, and there's r- relatively affordable housing in gentrifying neighborhoods that makes it feasible and and desirable. Actually, that you could you could um, you know find a fairly affordable house and be able to bike to work, right? Two to three miles, right? Rather than the commute in from the suburbs or the commute out from the urban center to jobs at the suburbs, right? right. Um, so the I think that you get a lot of the initial energy around the bicycle movement. If you look at critical mass, if you look at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition in its early days, again, these are the things I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this sort of the political mobilization is around making those types of journeys uh, e- easier, uh, more doable. Right. You also yeah. have the phenomenon where the neighborhoods that are getting gentrified in this time are your sort of classic innermost streetcar suburbs developed around 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, fairly walkable themselves. They have a mix of commercial and residential. They aren't yeah. by and large industrial neighborhoods, right? The industrial yeah. neighborhoods where you still have a lot of truck traffic, where in industry begat more industry or deindustrialization really hollowed out the economic base, where you have, you know, large roadways, you have you know, disinvestment and, uh, kind of a mix of small retail, et cetera, et cetera, um, lower income population. Uh, those were not, um, those were not areas where they were, that were attracting the kinds of people who would be listened to when they're demanding bicycle infrastructure. Right. Uh, there are still lots of cyclists in those neighborhoods, um, in a place like East Oakland, uh, or um, uh, North Philadelphia, or something like that, right? Where there are a lot of people who ride bicycles, uh, but they don't—they're not organized politically uh, mm-hmm. under the sort of the block of of, of cyclists. Um, and so there's this sort of paradox. Or in the the way that I came around to this project was I was working in a bike shop in Philadelphia, and. I was sort of one of those uh, white hipsters on fixies, right? At the same time, I spent a lot of my day speaking Spanish, uh, talking with and helping people fix their bikes, mostly Latin American immigrants who were working as dishwashers or delivering food, buying bikes at Walmart because it's what they could afford. Even though they knew that they were crap, they just couldn't afford anything better trying to get the most out of those bikes. Um, and so there was this funny dichotomy on the one hand, it's like, you have the cool bike arty, creative scene that is sort of trying to be encouraged maybe. And on the other hand, a lot of the people who are actually making do, um, on bicycles are not sort of part of that vision, I guess, for, for the city. Right. Um, When I think about things in spatial terms as well, right, if you imagine going back to the journeys to work from a sort of close in residential neighborhood that is experiencing a lot of turnover, a lot of middle class, you know, mostly white, but not necessarily exclusively white in migrants, um, the types of journeys that a lot of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take Durham, for example, where I live now, which is... Um, not, there's not a lot of good bicycle infrastructure. There's a little, there's not a lot of good bicycle infrastructure, but there's some job growth in the downtown area. There's certainly a lot of job growth in the sort of the, the suburbs. Um,
1: yeah.
10: but in terms of the kinds of jobs that, um, you know, like working class jobs that are being created at Amazon fulfillment centers, those are at the urban periphery, right? They're not places that even in a kind of a, a gentrifying neighborhood, even if bicycle infrastructure were created, the sort of the directionality of the, the feasible commute kind of runs against, uh, the feasible bicycle commute sort of runs against the very kind of spread out and scattered um, commutes in the sort of retail, wholesale, warehousing, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, the, the sectors that are experiencing job sprawl rather than a right. sort of a concentrated, um, concentrated job growth in, in the sort of the urban center, right? So that's another aspect to it as well.
6: Bike advocacy is very interesting to me, right? Like I was a bike messenger, uh, I, I was a bike racer, like these, I've made my living riding a bike. I've also just ridden my bike to get to work and bike advocacy really hasn't reflected a broad swath of cyclists for a very long time. Do you think that's why we don't see like better infrastructure in some, some of these like deindustrializing areas, for instance, and does that lead directly to it being more dangerous? Like I, you would be the person to ask, are there statistics to show that like it, it's more dangerous to ride your bike? So
10: I'll say a couple things. Um, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the directionality or the causality is a little bit complicated. I would say certainly there was some evidence that bicycle advocates weren't in in the early days, and there was a big sort of cultural shift in bicycle advocacy in the 1990s. Part of the 1990s, you have a lot of cyclists who are actually opposed to bicycle infrastructure.
6: <laughs> we still um, have they are still a, a loud uh, boomerish voice in San Diego.
10: Yeah, exactly. The vehicular cyclists, right? Yeah.
6: Yeah. Can you explain that? Sure. So, vehicular cyclists, um, it,
10: it was a philosophy expounded by uh, John Forrester. I might have his book right here. Yeah. Uh, okay. In the book, and it's not here, in the book Effective Cycling, um, where it was the idea was that cyclists should be riding like cars, right? Which means riding fast, center of the lane. Um, behaving exactly like a car, uh, and they were very opposed to any infrastructure that would sort of create be created, especially for bicyclists, huh. on the basis, uh which there was maybe some slight truth to this that that cyclists would be banned from roads that didn't have dedicated bicycle infrastructure. okay, there was a little bit of concern that was. There was, I, th- I think, I remember reading about a little bit of actual talk among legislators and planners that bicyclists would be kept off of main roads. And I think, to their to their credit, they saw the creation of bicycle infrastructure at that time as basically designed to get cyclists out of the way of motorists, right? And so it was mainly to advance the interests of motorists, right? Uh, but they were very hostile to um they're very hostile to a sort of a Dutch style model, which like you know, these were guys who like to ride fast, and like you don't you can't ride fast in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah,
7: yeah. Uh, not not everyone's physically able nor really wants to go forty miles an hour on a road next to cars exactly <laughs> yeah. right yeah. so
10: so it Fun. was very much around a strong fit confident cyclist who knew all the laws of the road rode really yeah. fast was very assertive um it obviously lent itself towards uh a sort of a a boomer type right um, yeah.
6: a sort of adventurous
10: yeah. type um and it was very much that we that bicycle advocates should advance the interests of cyclists, not try to grow the number of people cycling, right? And so the shift towards that maybe the critical mass moment is not the only thing, but this is that's sort of a good moment to kind of tag it to the 1992 uh, first critical mass era. But you know, Earth Day, vehicle yeah. for a small planet, all of this sort of growing interest in, in bicycling. Yeah. Um, the shift explain, towards more people should be doing this.
6: Yeah, can you explain critical mass to people who haven't like participated? Because I think it's quite a unique and interesting phenomenon.
10: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the critical mass began in San Francisco. In I think the first critical mass was 1992, um, and it was began sort of as like a group of people. Working, you know, broadly working office jobs who were sort of kind of culturally anarchistic or, you know, um, had these sort of anarchist or situationist kind of ideas, um, and who were, um, kind of organizing amongst themselves to ride home as a group. Right. And they started getting this idea of sort of having these monthly ride together, um, happenings right the they called they they didn't call them protests and they weren't organized rides they were um uh sort of rolling festivals was the idea i think the first the first name that they came up with which mercifully didn't stick was like the commute clot right so it was also about kind of jamming up the the regularity of the friday evening commute so it would be like the first friday of every month Mm -hmm. at at commute time right um
7: some some of these i think still happen in portland
10: oh yeah yeah yeah. it's it's the critical mass still happens um there's a you know one of the chapters in my book i sort of trace this arc of critical mass through to the more kind of bike party oriented yeah, ex- exactly uh, um, exactly the slow roll type of model which yeah. i think is interesting because it's a little bit it's consciously less confrontational it's not held at at a time that would clog up um sure clog up yeah. evening traffic uh it's designed to attract kind of families people who aren't trying to have confrontations with drivers or police right one of yeah. the things that sort of really put um, put bicycle infrastructure on the agenda in San Francisco was this mass arrest of critical mass mm-hmm. in 1997. Um, supposedly because the mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown at the time got stuck in one in his limo and was like furious. And so asked the police to crack down next time. It was <laughs> a huge, uh, it was, it backfired massively politically, but it also created this opening for the the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, which actually was an organization, San Fr- uh, critical mass was not an organization, right? It gave them this opportunity to say, well, what cyclists want is, you know, to actually build out the bike plan that supposedly exists, but nobody's been doing anything about, right? Um, so, I mean, that's probably maybe more than you wanted to know. But this sort of that, that arc of critical mass as this sort of countercultural moment that created this opening for a more formal bicycle uh, planning uh, and advocacy organization or a set of organizations to emerge. Right. Um, and maybe it's unfair. I think I'd probably do it in the book. It's a little bit unfair probably to call it a kind of depoliticization, but there was certainly a, a degree of kind of like explicit politics of sort of reclaiming the city more broadly sure. from a kind of left perspective yeah. That does disappear somewhat in the sort of the rhetoric of the bike movement.
7: Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely lost some of that like radical edge. Where these types of these types of you know when 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 like a hundred or two hundred people on bikes take over streets in Portland every once in a while, it is way more in the form of like a big party. It's like it's yeah. it's it's like it's like a it's like a roving block party. It it does not have that same level of like yeah, almost like situationist. Creating a happening or creating a situation that, that that affects the regular politics and affects the regular way that the city functions.
10: Yeah, I mean yeah. that being said, the the sort of the successors like uh, Bike Party in San Jose was a huge one, and this that Bike Party model kind of spread throughout California. Were often much bigger than critical mass, right? Um, sure, sure. A lot of times more diverse uh, as well, right? So there's there's a really interesting kind of politics around. Is the, is the politics in the sort of explicit slogans or is the politics in sort of like showing people that there is a kind of collectivity that they might be part of simply by virtue of like moving through urban space in a different way? And for a lot of people, it was their first time riding a bike in the city because they were so afraid of cars otherwise, right? You yeah, know, the yeah. safety and numbers. Yeah, yeah.
6: Yeah, it definitely. Um, I know for a lot of people that was the case. Like, I've done some critical masses. I mean, in the UK, we had Reclaim the Streets as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a similar vibe. I remember in the early, I guess, the first decade of this century, like, um, there would be critical mass rides before anti G8 protests. Like, I, I remember uh, in Octorada in Scotland and things, or not in Octorada, but before that, and like before other G8 protests, would be mass rides. And it, it's a very different scene to like, bike advocacy now, right?
10: Yeah, yeah. And you saw this a little bit with, like, the Occupy movement, uh, the... at least my experience of the... um, the sort of early wave of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014 with the killing of Trayvon Martin. um, There were a lot... the, the... bicycles seemed like an intuitive protest mode for many people. And that's probably sort of some of the cultural, political tools of critical mass that sort of surface here and there. Um, But I I think for the 20th anniversary, uh, Chris Carlson, who was one of the early organizers, called it, uh, talked about critical mass all over the world and that San Francisco felt kind of like the hole in the middle of the donut, right? Like it sort of created this reverberation but then it had actually withered to a degree in in the center. And often the narrative is, well, you're you're getting like you're winning, right? So critical mass is no longer necessary because you're getting bike lanes, you're getting um, you know you're getting investment, you're getting attention from planners, et cetera, et cetera. right? Obviously, yeah, the the gains, whatever they are, are pretty kind of geographically circumscribed.
7: No, and that kind of relates back to how we kind of started by talking about how, you know, some cities are putting more development into bike infrastructure, but how it's being developed is not actually serving people who, like can, like have to use a bike to, to commute because they yeah. don't own a car and they can't afford a car. like it's 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 getting used to people who actually already have a lot of resources. And like, an interesting case in point in this is uh, the Beltline in Atlanta, which like started off in the, you know, as, as an idea in nineteen ninety nine. With wanting to create like a giant loop using like public transit, uh, having, having rail going around the city, having bike, having bike paths going all around the city, uh, being able to like connect the city with these, with these like spaces uh, for like green space and affordable housing. And instead the project kind of manifested as this, like, like is this project that was head up by real estate companies to replace a whole bunch of low income neighborhoods with the massive amounts of like expensive restaurants and luxury condos mm. and you know putting putting the belt line and as a path to to create these like expensive gentrifi- like gentrifying um areas around the city and it's how like e- th- these ideas can start off so good and then when they get uh like you know actually done it's manifested in a way that is actually like not helpful to people who need this type of thing at all
10: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the Beltline, I don't know enough about it. I've read I've read a little bit of the sort of academic literature and I've been there um, and it is really kind of interesting how it is this it it is this huge investment in the reconversion of infrastructure, right? To sort of restore the value of the land surrounding it, right? Sort of old rail, old industrial infrastructure. And that's something that I don't think that you can, you're ever, you know, people, there are studies here and there that try to demonstrate the kind of the economic value of bicycle infrastructure, the contribution to tax, tax receipts, et cetera, et cetera. But it gets pretty hard to parse the causality, um, especially when you're, you know, especially when compared to something that is really sort of overhauling the space, right? I don't, it, you know, the Beltline belt is, it's, I think probably it's success from a sort of uh, uh, financial perspective has to do with it being, a multi-use path, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather yeah. than it being bicycle infrastructure, um, sure. and sort of it being, being framed as this much broader type of thing, right. Rather than, um, a bike lane on a street. Right. Um, yeah, yeah,
6: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not great to ride down, like at least on the weekend, because you'll just be slalom. No, this, <laughs> it's full of full of yeah, people. Yeah. It's full yeah. of like, like I when I when I, when I
7: was visiting last year during the start of summer, I went with a friend to the area by Ponce City Market, which is kind of a great example of the gentrifying force of. Yeah of the belt line but also like yeah there's people who's tr- people who are trying to ride bikes around but there's like k- kids on roller skates everywhere there's yeah. it, it's 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 pretty packed it's getting it's it's getting pretty pretty warm um but there's other parts that are like you know that are that are uh more isolated where it is much more of like a of like a commute path um right. but it's it's interesting it just like it like weaves in and out of these like retail and luxury apartment um you know pop-up restaurants sort of really. all along it exactly and mm-hmm. and all, all that stuff is 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 like relatively new for all the stuff that is like specifically s- surrounding the surrounding like the construction of the belt line
10: yeah and i mean the um i think that you maybe see this just a little bit with like you know the direction that i've taken this the thinking about it is more the sort of the types of urban strategies that have begun to incorporate bicycle infrastructure, right? Or yeah. active transportation more generally as the kind of big driving forces rather than like, is this bike lane here causing gentrification? It's usually, it's often the other way around, right? Bicycle yeah. infrastructure sort of emerges as a result of gentrification, right? Or there, as a result of, the in-migration of people who are going to be listened to, right, because yeah, of yeah. their status, because of their income, uh, because they have kind of existing um, capacities in in organizing for these types of things, right? Um, it's I think what's interesting is one of the one of the positions I've sort of come around to, right, is thinking more about. Um, not like, should we do bicycle infrastructure because it might kind of create the perception of gentrification or cause gentrification or something like that. And instead, like, you know, what one of the things that gentrification results from when you're thinking about amenities that sort of lead to the revalorization of, of urban space is that they are in some way special, right? And so if the question is, the specialness of this particular place, you know, Garrison, as you said, what makes a, um, you know, uh, the kinds of places where you can safely ride a bike are fairly unique, right? They're not well distributed. Right. And so from my perspective, it's sort of the more routine they become as an, as, as, you know, including them into urban space, the less special the places where they are built become, yeah. right? And it's yeah. and so routine that it wouldn't be worth mentioning, right? It's like mentioning that there is a sewer line, right? <laughs> like it's like mentioning that it has connection to city water, which okay, yeah, in you know at the at the urban edge where I live, um, I don't live at the urban edge, but the, in at the urban edge in the southeast. Um, you know, there isn't always connection to city water.
7: Um, yeah, like trying to get it normalized yeah. to the point where it's like obvious that it's something that is like a part of the city. It's like, yeah, like, of, right. like, of, of course, like, it's it's just as yeah. normal as like a sidewalk or a road or like yeah. a power
10: line. Which, yeah, to when be I, fair, I don't have any sidewalks on my street. And most of the streets <laughs> around me have a sidewalk on, on one side only.
7: <laughs> Portland Portland also has very, has very few sidewalks.
6: Yeah, yeah, we, we do have those. Yeah, I lived in Belgium for a while when I was racing. At like, I lived in a town that was very much just like lots of Belgium, is shitty grey coal mining towns. Uh, I love Belgium, but this is a thing. Uh, and like, yeah, they would never have beat. You know, the bike infrastructure was unremarkable. It was just a thing that everyone used to go to the shops or go to school. It wasn't, you know, right. less like selling point for a brunch restaurant.
10: Yeah, and I think it's this kind of thing where it's bigger than just the infrastructure, right? A lot of the places where bicycle infrastructure has been really successful, right, it, are these sort of dense, relatively dense areas. Actually, not the densest areas, right, where everything was in, in, is in walking distance, but the areas kind of just beyond there, right, where, um, where there are, you know, shops, places of employment, services, et cetera, et cetera, all sort of within reasonable biking distance or maybe long walking distance right um but too short to really merit a, a trip on a bus or a train right or and you know short enough that maybe some of us would feel a little bit silly getting in the car to go do it right so that that kind of zone is also not terribly common in the United States right a lot of those places got destroyed to build highways right or got destroyed to build, yeah. Kind of suburban style shopping malls, um, and so that's part of their part of their specialness. Um, but going back to the idea of um, you know people in in the places where people were really relying on bicycles, right? That there isn't necessarily infrastructure. It's partially a data issue. Going back to your data question, right? The way that we collect data on bicycling is people people bicycling to work, right? Um, If people aren't in the workforce or they happen to not have a job, um, that is not counted in the census, right? Even if you bicycle to the train like I do, like if I get to fill out the census, I'm going to fill out train, right? Because that's the bulk of my journey when I commute. Um, And so it skews your perception of where infrastructure might be needed. If you're using data toward places that where people are commuting by bicycle, right. Um, rather than, you know, commuting is only a quarter to a third of all trips, right. Rather than all the other trips that we, we don't know about. Right. And sometimes we measure them with passive measurement, like pressure sensors in the street, sometimes active measurement, like people doing, bicycle counts on particular days, right? There's a whole history of that. Now we're using Strava, but then we're getting a small, like we're getting a very rich data set about a small subset of cyclists and hoping that I, that extends to most, if not all cyclists. Um, and then to your question, sorry, then, and I'll, I'll pause, right? To your question about the um, the, the the data, question right how how deadly or how dangerous are various streets that don't have uh bike lanes there is a big problem of the the missing denominator right we don't know how many people cycle so we don't know the rates of injury uh on these particular roadways in the way in the same way that we do know car volumes and can have a better sense of the rates of injury uh in Based on collisions, right? But you you do see clusters of collisions in places where, um, you know where there are large roads meeting, where basically no, very few, if any, traffic engineers would sign off on taking away some of that car capacity to to create more safety for cyclists, and of course those those kind of compound. Those factors kind of compound, right? You maybe have an industrial area; it's a big interface with a large urban arterial or a, an off ramp to a highway, right? These kind of all go together with um, with potentially sort of lower um, lower income area or sort of a lower um, less pressure to improve that uh, that area.
6: Yeah. So I'm thinking, I do. When I think about like how the bike movement missed uh, an opportunity to be better, I always think about like this moment in 2020 when this man called Dijon Kizzy was killed by police in LA, and the, the the incident which which led to the cops shooting him began because the cops tried to pull him over for running a stop sign on a bike, right? Which is a thing that tens of thousands of white dudes in spandex do every single day uh, in this country, mm-hmm. and. and not a not a word was was spoken by the bike movement, at least that I saw, um, by bike folks, you know, in in sort of solidarity or or opposition to what what had happened, right? It, it just it it was just an, another thing that that went were mourned by thousands of people and ignored by others. So like it made me think about like how we build. Maybe it's wrong to think about how we build a better bike movement, and and maybe it's better to think about how we make it unremarkable that you bike, right? We make it like not an identity thing. But how do we make cities where people are safe riding bikes, I guess, regardless of whether they're wearing spandex or they're just trying to get to the shops?
10: Yeah, I mean, that's a really kind of an important question. And it, in in my research, a lot of people were grappling with that. There was an incident that mercifully didn't result in someone being killed or seriously injured, but you know, a guy was pulled off of his bike by police beaten up in San Francisco. And there was a big march afterwards. And some of the, some bicycle advocates did show up, but it was not framed as this is something that, you know, is affecting us as cyclists, right? This is, or that affecting some of us as cyclists, right? And an injury to one is an injury to all, right? That's not, that's not, was not the kind of the frame that, that people were, we're using to my from what I could tell. Right. Um, and you had bicycle, you know, black bicycle advocates in East Oakland who didn't really frame themselves as bicycle advocates necessarily in the traditional, um, or the mold that is sort of determined by the sort of the hegemonically kind of white middle-class advocacy organizations. Right. Yeah. But they were very much bicycle advocates who, you know, um, a lot of were a lot of, a lot of what they did was sort of like teaching people to ride correctly so that they would have fewer interactions with police, right. Or, um, kind of managing interactions with, with police and, you know, hopefully becoming well enough known as cyclists that they weren't kind of subject to the kinds of interactions that, you know, where police end up killing somebody. Right. Um, now that I live in a place where very few people bicycle to work or for much of anything, right. I'm thinking a bit more holistically about, uh, you know, it's now kind of a buzzword, but you know, a kind of a, a more car optional, um, city, right. Uh, where you don't need to have a car to do various things. You know, I'm, I'm involved with bicycle advocates here. But like when I, when I look around, I see like a bus stop that is a stick in a median, right? There's no bench, there's no sidewalks to get to it. There's no crosswalks or anything like that. And I mean, I think that one of the bigger, one of the bigger questions is to make a place that's safe for cyclists, safe for people walking, safe for people walking their bikes or safe for people walking to transit, right. Mm -hmm. Um, is reducing the kind of the space and the, the way that space and speed go together, right. That are devoted to cars. And, and a lot of that is like, um, reducing the, the, the distances that people need to travel, Right. For various things. Right. And this gets into the sort of the 15 minute city stuff, which is uh, it's been really wild to see it being turned into this like QAnon type, <laughs> you know, ad- agenda 21 UN black helicopters type of conspiracy theory. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Because I think of it as a very kind of milquetoast uh type of policy framework that's honored in the breach, right? Sort of like complete streets. There's a carve out for, unless a traffic engineer says it's not really feasible and then we won't really question that judgment. We just won't do it. Right. So, um, I mean, I do think it's bigger than modes of transport are really bigger than people's individual decisions or even like what the sort of, once you are in your mode of transport, what the sort of, behavioral matrix is right it's sort of like what what does your life consist of right um what what do you do to like preserve your dignity with your coworkers, right all of these kinds of things yeah. that feed people towards towards driving except in yeah. you know very specific places that you know have be- yeah. have become special in the united states I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to say, right? It is really. It, it's much bigger than than bicycling. Um, mm-hmm. It's the sort of the the built environment, and I think one of the things that what I land on in the book, maybe belatedly, right, because these 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 things take years, is um yeah. is this the way that bicycling is still kind of this interstitial um, solution, right? It's sort of like kind of picking up scraps here and there in the built environment, right. It's like picking up some of the loose ends, right. In how cities are organized that makes them frustrating, difficult to navigate. Right. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of the energy, not exclusively, certainly, and bicycle advocacy has become much more diverse in part through like listening to a lot of the voices of advocates of color and, and, uh, women advocates and, you know, um, kind of thinking beyond that sort of stereotypical, you know, not just the, the middle-aged man in Lycra, but like the, the sort of middle-aged guy on a Surly, right. You know, that, that maybe successor to the middle-aged man in Lycra, right. I'm certainly calling myself out. Um, but the, (laughs) it's still very kind of an interstitial thing, right? Um, it's, and the thing about the uh, the urban transportation systems in the United States is that they leave a lot of interstices, right? There's a lot of areas that are poorly served by anything but cars. And honestly, poorly served by cars. You know, in in Oakland, you had people, a lot of the sort of the, maybe not, anger, but certainly annoyance at, at bicycle advocacy and bicycle infrastructure, um, would be, and I think you see this in Portland too, where it's like, well, we've been asking for sidewalks. We've been asking the city to, to like fill these potholes. And instead there's these bike lanes that people who just got here are asking for. Right. And so maybe that's a failure of solidarity on people coming, you know, people moving to a neighborhood. They, they're like, why is it so torturous to get somewhere by bike rather than kind of maybe stopping and saying, all right, what, what's, what have people been demanding here before I got yeah. here? Right. Um, and how can I sort of contribute to that as well and sort of kind of merge our agendas potentially. Um, but it is this sort of, it's a, it's an interstitial um, solution. Right. And so from, for me, you know the bigger the bigger questions are sort of what what role will bicycles play when we start to really take seriously the the kind of broader urban structure so you don't have these sort of islands of bikeability inside a sea of automobility right um, yeah. do you have a situation where it actually becomes more practical to walk and take transit than it is to bike right? I would call that a that a win, right? And I yeah. think, you know, yeah, yeah. there's a there's Definitely. a there's a degree to which we can get fixated on on the particular mode of transport. I think because we all kind of like fell in love with bicycles. And that was the sort of the the um the gateway drug into thinking about like transport and cities and how people move around and and the sort of the history of urban planning, right? So um I mean these are all I don't know if I really kind of offered anything that's sort of puts it all together nicely. Right. Um, But the idea that it really does need to become normalized. And if it actually sort of disappears in the process of being normalized and it stops being a signifier of environmental rectitude or something like that. And, you know, if I could walk to a grocery store instead of having to bike to a grocery store, I would prefer that, honestly, where I am right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I love cycling, yeah. right? And it's something that I'll, I'll never stop doing, right? So I think kind of thinking more holistically about what kinds of cities we need to have to move beyond uh, move beyond automobility, both from a climate perspective and a social justice perspective um, and just a, almost like a thermodynamic perspective, <laughs> Um so I mean that maybe that's the moving up to the level of physics is where <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. one one kind of place to end, <laughs> yeah, cool. no, I think that's very good,
6: yeah, is there anything you'd uh, you'd like to plug, maybe uh people where people can find your book where people can follow you online and anything like that any sort of projects you're interested in,
10: sure, yeah, so um. My, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at J O S T E H L I N. Um, my book is now it's few years old. It's 2019 with University of Minnesota Press. It's all. It's called uh, "Cyclescapes of the Unequal City." Um, and my latest work, I'm actually looking at um, the politics of highway removal. Uh, so maybe scaling up in terms of infrastructure, thinking about sort of bigger, the kind of the great clanking gears of, of urbanism rather than, you know, this little tiny, uh, stretch of pavement on the side that's, that's full of glass and car doors and stuff like that. So, but of course they all kind of fit together the sort of, what are the, what, how does the, the fabric of the built environment have to change in order to grapple with climate change inequality, um, and sort of making a sort of a more human type of city.
6: Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for giving us some of your afternoon, John.
10: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it was a really fun conversation.
6: Hi, podcast fans. It's me, it's Jones, and it's just a tiny little pickup that I wanted to add to the end of this episode because I neglected to mention that Ciclista Zine did call out uh, the police killing of Dijon Kizzy very explicitly and had an excellent piece on it, uh, as they do on lots of other things. They are incredibly wonderful, and you can find them at Zine C-Y-C-L-I-S-T-A-Z-I-N-E dot com. Uh, they are not representative of the rest of the bike media, so well worth looking at if you like bikes and uh, not the police murdering people. They're a wonderful publication. Okay, thanks. Bye.
2: culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Oh hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels.
3: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart um, and sometimes putting things back together. And, uh, you know, today we're doing an episode that's kind of more on the the intellectual and emotional end of, of a very specific set of things falling apart. And rather than uh, clumsily try to introduce it myself, I'm going to bring on... The person who, uh, who I think some the the thoughts that have kind of been going through my head, I know they've been going through the heads of a lot of the folks that we have here at Cool Zone for for quite some time now. Thought slime, you are a uh, YouTuber um, and uh, a good YouTuber uh, who does a, a number of videos. Some of your recent ones are thoughts on AI art, um, a timeline of Elon's Twitter mistakes. You did a really fun video on um, the QAnon Queen of Canada. Um, who is uh, a pretty problematic character. Um, Welcome to the show.
8: (laughs) Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
3: Uh, Do you want to just kind of start by reading us that thread you posted? Because you posted this on Twitter the other day and I I, I started chatting with it and then we we moved over to DMs and and decided we should kind of do a little more formal thing.
8: Yeah, so basically uh, I said that I'm constantly considering making a why I left the left video about how my views have not changed one iota but I've become completely disillusioned about my role in communicating them. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason I shifted my focus to trying to be just entertaining is because deep down, I don't really see a lot of value in getting people on my side anymore. I don't think it does anything or means anything, but the best I can do is give you information and hopefully a laugh. Mm-hmm. I used to feel like I was participating in something bigger than I think a lot than I think I really am, that I was helping in some small t- in some small way towards a sort of shift towards a more revolutionary mass consciousness. I think that was a bit of a childish fantasy in retrospect. Sometimes people will say, you made me an anarchist. And like, buddy, I don't even think it matters that I myself am an anarchist. And I regret that that sort of we're fighting the good fight mentality has allowed some of the worst grifters on the platform to flourish by manipulating people's passions for their own weird, petty reasons. I think what I do has a lot of value, but I'm just saying that I think I perceive that value to be is a lot different than what I thought it was a few years ago. Is basically what I had to say.
3: Yeah, that I think does such a good job of nailing the problem that I've been kind of, of of dealing with emotionally as well. Which is, it's it's not. It'd be easy to sum it up as like I no longer believe in you know trying to transmit you know leftist ideas or or political analysis or that I I don't believe in the value of like trying to uh, uh, inform people about the world because that's not how I feel. But there is there has been this shift. And I think probably the high point for the version of me that was optimistic about the ability to use mass media to build power and the ability to take effective action on the left. I think that kind of crescendoed, I'm gonna I'm gonna say June of 2020. Um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it it had a pretty sharp drop after that point. And I I I both think it's it's valuable to still acknowledge kind of how remarkable what happened in 2020 was for all of its flaws and all of the really messy uh, fallout from it, we saw an an uprising of unprecedented scale. And part of why the crackdown and response has been so gnarly is that it scared the hell out of a lot of really unpleasant people. Um, And uh, the media had a a significant role to play in that, both in the fact that there were a lot of people who who were kind of already organizing and radicalized when the shit started to hit the fan and that as things happened um you know the the what was happening in the streets what the police were doing the different kind of marches and 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 different campaigns that were being started got spread to people and i i do think that you know folks you know like you and me were a part of that although it never is far from my mind that the most influential piece of media that was that was recorded and disseminated during 2020 was the video of George Floyd being murdered, which was filmed by you know someone who just happened to be nearby and had the courage to film it, uh, not a professional journalist, not a not an influencer, not a yeah. uh, not somebody who was a professional political thinker. and everything else combined didn't have the influence of that video
8: yeah, I think that that kind of gets to the heart of it, right? is that like we we express support. For ideas, and thus people tend to treat us as though we are the uh, progenitors of those ideas, or or the the guardians of those ideas, or the leaders of of a kind of decentralized proxy party of some kind.
3: Yeah, it's 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 both because I I think thankfully there's that I mean there's there's always going to be every everyone who makes popular media. It gets forms a little cult. And so there's always going to be a number of people who, you know, take any given person in the media uh more seriously than they deserve. And that that includes uh the both of us. And that's that's not yes. attempting to be that's not attempting to be like humble or anything. That is simply no. a fact of how mass media works. Um I do think we've seen I think there's been a, a mix of a healthy pushback against looking at people who are doing creating popular media as more than what they are and more than what that media is capable of being. I think there has been a pushback against that in the last couple of years. It's been healthy. And I think there's been a pushback that's been unhealthy. Um, I think people have forgotten some of the lessons uh, of like one. I think a good example would be there was a very justified backlash against. um, And when I say streamers here, I'm referring to people who are actually in the street streaming during riots and protests and whatnot. Right. And that and the justified part of that backlash was due to the fact that Past a certain point, uh, particularly those video, those streams were primarily being used by law enforcement, um, both to to get charges on people and to um, just to know where folks were as an intelligence gathering method. And mm-hmm. I think that the backlash, which was understandable, and there was a lot of ugly behavior, including people who kind of got in after the early portions of that in order to make shitloads of money by you know streaming people getting the shit beat out of them by the cops, and and that was I I think very justified, a pretty aggressive social response to that. Um, But I think it's also caused a lot of people to forget that a huge part of why things kicked off in 2020 and why so many people got involved was Nico from Unicorn Riot on the ground every night in Minneapolis, doing one of the most impressive pieces of citizen journalism that I think we've seen in this country. Um, And so I, I do think that some of what's frustrating here is that it's difficult for people, it's difficult for us as a community to take some of the proper lessons from these, these things that are happening, from the push and pull of the conflict that we all find ourselves in, in part because the nature of the way people express their understanding of these lessons via social media um, is, is very geared towards flattening them and making it a very simple matter of this is bad or this is good and not, yes. well, in this period of time, this worked and then it didn't, you know?
8: There's there's no real sense of proportionality in in these discussions. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a matter of like, hey, uh, you fucked up. You should probably take this down, or this mm-hmm. could be dangerous if you leave this up, or if you continue to do this. It's more so like, what are you a cop? What are you some kind of cop doing this? Yeah, you know, let's let's spread that rumor around.
3: And it, I mean, yeah, we the 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 cop jacketing thing is is kind of one part of the problem. But I I want to focus a little bit on on what you were talking about in terms of what do you think as you're kind of looking at you know and and we're all kind of staring 2024 as it approaches what do you think is useful from media that that attempts to to analyze and and share perspectives um that are that are left wing that are anarchist inclined what do you think is actually the value that that can be added to attempts to to um achieve greater justice in our society?
8: Well, I think the answer is twofold. I think firstly, anything that drives people to like real life organizing and taking action outside of online spaces is obviously useful. Um, beyond that though, like I think there there is some value to just exposing people to ideas that they might not have found otherwise. But I think that um that A lot of that has been accomplished now. I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of people are more familiar with, with kind of the leftist, the, the leftist ideology one-on-one type of content that uh, uh, people might expect in that way. So yeah, I would say those are the two value propositions.
3: I, I wonder if you think a lot about, because one thing that concerns me, obviously um, any community develops a language that is to some extent its own um and that's that's a that's part of of politics you know political analysis if you're looking at things with a marxist analysis or if you're analyzing things you know based on your understanding of generations of of anarchist political philosophy there's terms that you're going to use that that other thinkers have have created that are the terms that people use to discuss those ideas um but it is sometimes kind of a thin line between that and the thing that cults do, where they come up with a bunch of specific terms mm-hmm. that no one else uses in order to to separate a community from the the rest from everyone else. And obviously, I don't think there's any intentionality there. I don't think people who are talking about, um, you know, the dialectic or whatever, are attempting to separate their listeners from the mass of humanity. But I do think that happens sometimes. And I, I when I listen sometimes to conversations. On the left, about um, justice in particular, about social justice, I wonder, like, well, how is somebody who isn't like reading all this shit going to um, interpret this? Is it just going to like sound like nonsense to them? And I think maybe like part of the 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 purpose, the positive purpose of mass media that looks at things from the left is trying to communicate with folks who are not going to sit down, or at least who have not yet sat down and done a whole bunch of reading on the history and the politics, but whose hearts are in the right place, and who I would like to be able to engage in conversations with folks who maybe kind of get their heads a little bit too full of uh, of, of specific terminology sometimes.
8: I think it's a, it's a specific balancing act, because um, on the other hand, like you also have to give your audience a little credit that, that they're absolutely. capable of, Absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think that, like, y- you have to be able to to meet people where they're at, but at the same time, like, if someone has expressed this idea in a way that's already sufficient, like, it's it's uh, why do the work of, like, trying to re-explain it, you know? But that being said, I think there is a tendency to just assume people already are on our side or understand uh, ideas to the level of complexity that we might like. And that people are on board with, like, what even something as simple as what capitalism means, you know? All the time you, you see people online who will say that, like, uh, a, a, a musician will post their uh, band camp page and people will mm-hmm. be like, oh, I thought you were anti-capitalist, you know? <laughs>
3: yeah.
8: It's it's like, you know, but, like, you also can't get caught up in the the kind of... Um, <laughs> Weaponized ignorance that, that yeah. people, you know, like you 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 can't make someone understand something if they have a particular reason not to want to. So I, I absolutely agree that like there is the danger of that that group in speak, uh, but it, it's it's a it's a, a difficult problem to solve. I think the kind of approach I take to it most of the time is that I I tend to write my scripts. Uh, as though, as though I am uh, just the like, like a child. <laughs> like I, t- yeah. I try to write uh, as though I'm speaking to a five year old. <laughs> you know.
3: Yeah. I mean, and I, I think I, I also I think a lot about, and this is something you know here at, at Cool Zone. I brought we brought on a couple of years ago um, people who you know are are now making podcasts for the team who. When we brought them on, had a lot less experience um, writing scripts and and making media for mass consumption. And one of the things that I I found it was kind of like my job to to do repeatedly was to point out like, okay, stop, go actually go back to that term because you you just you know said some, a, a term that I think means a specific, or you just referenced a thing from history that I I think that people are interested in and should know about. But you do have to like go in and explain it and and walk people through it. Um, and that's kind of part of, that's really one of the challenges I find, particularly with um, with Behind the Bastards, right, where we're we're talking sometimes about these complicated social movements and moments in history. And it's this kind of tug of war between you want to respect the intelligence of the audience and you want to give them enough detail that they have context and that they can maybe understand multiple sides of it. But also, you can't get bogged down in every detail; otherwise, you're never going to finish the damn thing. And we we can't all Mm. be Dan Carlin making ten hour long podcasts. Unfortunately, I I do (laughs) like. There's a degree to which I'm quite jealous of his work, uh, his the way he set up his workload. But um,
8: I would just never be able to think of that many boxing analogies.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't know very much about boxing. Um, I would probably just like throw in a whole lot of balls, Mahoney analogies. yeah a lot of for me it would mm-hmm. be a lot
8: of super punch-out references I hell think. yes stan lee would always say to comic book writers that every comic is somebody's first comic mm-hmm. and so you kind of have to consider that like every piece of messaging you do might this might be like the first time someone is stepping out of a completely different ideological bubble than you might expect and so you know it kind of has the messaging kind of has to stand on its own but I think that's also like a, a unique problem to mass media because it it also means that in a sense, it's much harder to like build on previous work. It's harder to like go yeah. from your 101 content and then get to the more advanced subjects because someone could just start at the more advanced part and get lost.
3: I think that's a really apt way of describing what what I also find as one of the the central problems because a ton of the episodes of bastards especially the stuff when we focus on fascists builds on itself right yes. your you you your understanding of fascism in Romania will be influenced and is to some degree uh, you, you don't really you can't understand fascism in Romania without understanding fascism in Weimar fascism in Italy fascism in the United States during the same period and and vice versa uh and so my hope is that the people who catch all of the episodes are building a, a really complex and durable understanding of the problem through it. But it's also the struggle of like, well, but a lot of people are just going to be like, oh shit, I know Hitler, uh, but I, I maybe I'm not interested in hearing about Romania, you know, and I, I'm not going to click on those episodes. And there's nothing against people. Like when I listen to podcasts, I find myself doing the same thing, where it's like, there's a million sure. episodes of this show. I'm not going to listen. I don't, I don't have the time to listen to all of them.
8: Sure. Yeah. and 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 that touches on another problem, which is that you know the subjects that people like us tend to cover are biased towards what we think people will find interesting yeah you know and beyond that like what we ourselves find interesting to research
3: yeah and what and what you can and this is a thing that i try to point out on on my subreddit sometimes when people are like i can't believe you haven't done this guy or that guy and it's like well that doing the that research is gonna fuck me up, and like, so I'm not gonna do it yet. I'm gonna do this thing that's funny. I'm gonna read about the Liver King this week. I need I need a break. So the Liver King is who we're talking
6: about.
8: <laughs> yeah, uh, everybody needs a Liver King in their life at some point. Yeah, it's like uh, I I um I read the Turner Diaries for one video. Yeah, and I I've been constant people have been constantly like, oh, you should read uh, Camp of the Saints. You should read Siege. And I'm like, oh, uh, I don't know if I want to. Nah. First of all, I don't even know if I want those things on my hard drive. Yeah. You
3: know? yeah. Camp of the Saints is a little easier, but yeah, maybe maybe one of those a year and no more. That's like yeah. the most I would recommend from like a and mental health standpoint. It's also like you don't need to read the full text of all of those. I mean, that's part of the thing is that like you can get a lot of by checking in some excerpts and reading scholarly papers, analyzing this stuff. And there there always will be that. Um, and I, I think to to a significant standpoint, like it's more important to understand, you know, and this isn't true for everybody because there's some people who you know are scholars of this stuff, and you do need yeah. to, to 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 do the deep reading. But if you want to understand the degree to which Siege and the Turner Diaries influenced the mass shootings that we see in the United States today that are carried out by the far right, you don't need to read those books to do that, right? There's plenty no. of really good scholarly analysis, and that's part of what what you and I try to do for people, um, and what what other you know folks who are creating this kind of media, other journalists. Do for folks?
8: Yeah, I, I will. I would say that I I, I strongly balk at the. Uh, I I don't consider myself a journalist.
3: Um. Yeah. I mean, and I don't consider I, that's something people talk about as well on the subreddit. I I get a lot of like comments on people appreciating the journalism in the series, and and we do in some of our shows. Like you know, we did. We went to the border of Myanmar last year. Garrison sure. just got back from Cop City. But like bastards isn't journalism, you know, sometimes it's like celebrating journalism, but it's, it's, it's entertainment that I hope has like an educational quality to it.
8: Yeah. It's a, I don't, I don't say this to uh, belittle myself. I just don't see that as, as the function yeah. of my job. I think like, dr- like I have, I have in the, in the course of my work occasionally done journalism by accident. I did a, a long interview where I had like a about the Chaz and and kind of the misconceptions that people had. And I had some, you know, talks with people within. And like that is technically on its face a piece of journalism. For sure. uh, You know absolutely. It's it's not what I consider my uh, (laughs) strength or role to be.
3: Well and I, I honestly this goes back to what we were talking about with the the young woman who filmed the the video of uh of George Floyd. Um Journalism is a profession but it's also just like a set of tools and yes. you know sometimes you will use those tools in order to do other things you know that that's that's certainly true I'm curious you and I you and I both kind of uh like make our 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 work work uh differently um mine's ad supported obviously so my conversation with fans you know outside of like when I'm doing a live show is primarily through we have a subreddit and we have twitter um, and that's uh, you know, there's some difficulty there for one thing. Like in every single guest we have, there are people who will be like, "This is the best guest you've ever had," and this person is the worst guest you've ever had. <laughs> and there's absolutely no way to make decisions based on that, no. right? It's just a bunch no, of straight. <laughs> yeah. um, you you've got a a different relationship, or at least a different method of I think communicating. I imagine it's different um, because because you're you're Patreon supported. I'm interested in how have, if if at all, have you seen kind of the conversations about what people want from you and, uh, you know, the, the way in which you've been talking with your fans? How have you seen that change since 2020?
8: Well, um, I think one of the major ways is since I've kind of taken a step back from this uh, explicitly political content, it's a lot of people have kind of encouraged me to go more in that direction. Uh, And I have seen like a big drop in my support as a result. Uh, I I think that it's a a tricky balance to strike again. Many of these things are like Mm. such a balancing act because I always am careful to remind people that like, hey, you can support me on Patreon if you like what I'm doing and want there to be more of it. But please don't operate under the assumption that doing so is activism or contributes yeah. to activism, because it is not. You are not like making <laughs> the the revolution more. Yeah, imminent, exactly. You know, you are getting a little drawing that I'm going to put at the end of my video. Like that's that's the value proposition here. Yeah. Um and I think that, you know, it's it's of um, I don't the reason I don't accept uh, ad ad uh, reads on Thought Slime, I do on Scaredy Cats, mm-hmm. uh, is because I don't want the perception that my views are going to be limited or held back by, you know, the desire to seek out advertisers, which whether or not I would have the, the integrity to withstand, like it, it would create the illusion. But that creates the problem of, well, now I kind of have to do what I think that my audience will want and that it that's its own kettle of fish like am i am i pushing people to donate more than than they might be comfortable with and so that's you know i don't i don't really know like the the ethics of it to be perfectly frank there have been times when um people have made big donations and i've had to message them and say like hey i think you should you should probably take this money back you probably yeah. weren't thinking straight when you sent me this money i think you should probably have it back
3: yeah that's such an interesting thing for me because it also, you know, I, I've I've thought about that my, myself quite a lot. You know, I, I had a decision to make when we first started doing these shows about how it was going to be done. And I I, I took the ad supported corporate route and I, I've been very happy with that so far. There's a lot of things it's let us do. There's certainly downsides to it, um, you know, including occasionally advertising for the Washington State Highway Patrol. <laughs> yeah, Um yeah. But, um, you know, it's one of those things, I made a comment and this is part one of the one of the frustrating things about making media for a large audience is uh, there's always going to be people who will like read into what you've said, something you never meant. I made a comment once about like, mm-hmm. you know, because we get people asking, well, why don't you do a Patreon or whatever? Uh, why do you do it this way? And then I just made a comment like uh, expressing what you had just expressed, like, well, you know, I, I feel weird sometimes asking for money. And if I can just like get money from a big company and, you know, hire my friends and and do my work. I feel okay doing that. It's how most of my career has worked. So that's what I'm most comfortable doing. And there were people who took from that, like, well, Robert doesn't think it's ethical to have a Patreon. It's like half of my friends make their living on Patreon. (laughs) I do not have an ethical problem with supporting yourself that way.
8: Um, I I will say that when I I heard you mention that in an episode, and it did send a chill down my spine briefly. (laughs)
3: No, I mean, I think like Cody Cody Johnston, who I've worked with for what fifteen years now, has a massive Patreon. Uh, Tom and Dave, I lived with some of my best friends. You know, yeah, yeah, I, like, yeah. Like it's it's I I think it's perfectly it's it's certainly no less ethical, and you can make a case people do that it's more ethical than being ad supported. It's just like. I mean, some of it just comes down to like, what kind of stuff are you making and what kind of like person are you and what's going to work best with you as like a a, a creative method and a way of interacting with fans. And they have downsides and they have positives, you know?
8: It's also like a matter of of uh, what, what you're able to do to a certain extent, mm-hmm. because like, I don't know how to get advertisers. Like sure. any advertisers that I've ever gotten on my my horror channel have just reached out to me. And like, I don't know if I'm, getting as much money out of them as I should be. I have no idea. I just, I just kind of wing it, you know? But like, if you have that background in, in radio or broadcasting or, or what have you, like it can, you know, that it's, it's a much more viable option for some people than it is for others.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of why it works for me, the way that it does is because I've had a 15 year career in, not in broadcast, but you know, in, in comedy writing and whatnot yeah. um and so i i mean that's how i got the i i got my podcast hosted on iheart in the first place and and that's like a thing and this is actually one of the things that concerns me most about the shit that's happening with ai right now because you know there's this uh the, the folks that kind of i came into making media for all of us started as fairly apolitical comedy. I mean, that's Cody Johnston, right? Some more news. Right. Cody was making videos about like chat roulette and penises uh, when we when we all started working together. Um, very funny videos, but like we were making silly things. Um, and everyone has kind of uh, moved into making like some, you know pretty pretty serious fact based media. Um, you know, Cody does a very popular, very political kind of current event show. And, um, we were able to get good at making the kind of media that we made and build the connections that we built and build the audiences that we built because we had years of time where you could make a decent living writing stuff for the internet. And I, I see the kind of shit that I'm afraid AI is going to do. Um, to these jobs where people would get their start as writers and whatnot. Maybe it wasn't the best, you know, it's not, you're not doing the best writing you're ever going to do the jobs that get replaced by AI, but it's a foot in the door. And I keep feel I feel like I keep seeing the room for people to put their foot in the door, get smaller and smaller every year. And that's, mm. that worries me a lot.
8: I definitely know what you mean. I also feel that like, there, there's a fear among some, some people that like, you get crowded out of these spaces, the more people there are doing this sort of thing. And I, I kind of feel like that's not the case. Mm Uh, I like the AI stuff. I definitely share your concerns, but yeah, the, the, the institutional barriers in people's way. Like, I I think that like, uh, to be frank, like I started doing this on a shitty $200 computer and, uh, uh, completely legal, uh, video editing software i love
3: legal video editing software
8: i found it in a dumpster and i used that so uh uh, you know and then like through that i was able to like be able to afford a a fancy camera and some lights and you know uh but like i didn't know what i was fucking doing like it was all self-taught and i think there there has to be that kind of diy attitude yeah uh for people and it, it is something i try to encourage in people is that like just, just do it. Like I did it. You
3: can do it. Yeah. You know. I think that's a great point because I, I am coming at this from the, the old man doomerist perspective of somebody who, like, the world has changed from the way it was when I'm young, when I was young, mm-hmm. and people don't get their career started that way anymore. Um, and your point is very valid. That, that while changes in the industry have closed specific doors, they've also created some. Um, and. I think probably in the long run, it is better for people to get their foot in the door doing what you did than rewriting a bunch of press releases about tech gadgets for a shady <laughs> website that takes advantage of the Google algorithm, which is how I started my career. Uh, I think that's sure, actually I, a really I don't think valid I don't point.
8: Think yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that's, uh, it, it depends on your end goal too, right? But I think like mm-hmm. the thing that becomes incumbent on, on people like me is to like help people, you know, it, yeah. like a- uh, I've experienced a certain amount of success. And so, and I attribute that largely to the fact that like, when I was just starting out, like I had no idea how to make people see my shit. I didn't like, I did not know what I was doing. Yeah. And uh, a bigger creator just reached out and was like, Hey, can I share your video? I think it's really mm-hmm. good. And it kind of snowballed from there. So my philosophy has always been like, you take these, uh, you know, you, you make space for, to, to lift people up with you. hmm and yeah. in doing so, it's not an entirely selfless gesture either, because in doing so, if if there's an extremely talented person who succeeds partially because you help them, now you have a connection to an extremely talented person. You know, yeah, like that's that's a, a sense of, uh, f- for lack of a better term, mutual aid in a very yeah loose sense, I suppose.
3: I uh, that reminds me of something a good friend of mine and a colleague at Cracked who who now. Uh, helps run the Small Beans podcast network uh, said to me years and years ago um, when he was directing a video, which is, um, I want to spend the rest of my career getting hired and fired by my friends, which uh, <laughs> is is a I think a nice way of looking at it. And there's a degree to which it's a very old Hollywood way of looking at it, but it, it doesn't. It also works very well in this. It can work very well in this new, this new kind of ecosystem that is still being put together um and i do think that it's because i i see a lot and i i don't I, i'm not someone who does a lot of time like i, I like to watch i like to watch like the stuff that you put together the stuff h bomber guy puts together where it's actual like um, um videos on topics and i'm learning something right. um the stuff that, that dan olson puts together you know yeah. um i'm not so much into and this is not i'm not attacking anybody i'm not like trying to shit on the, the field but personally i don't watch like the just kind of like stream stuff a lot, and mm-hmm. I it does seem like there's a lot of conflicts between people in that, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, I my hope is that there's more people building connections to create resiliency between the people who are are trying to make good shit um, and trying to make stuff that that people enjoy and that has an impact on people and that even changes people in positive ways. Um, And it it sounds like from what from what you're talking about and, you know, honestly, from what I experienced, too, I do think that's more the case than like the drama that that goes viral on Twitter from time to time.
8: Yeah, I I think, you know, I hope hope so, too. Mm -hmm. I think that that uh, it's it's very easy to piss people off Uh, and it's much harder to get people's attention by being kind. But, you know, I like look, you know, I, I how many Nice comments do I get in a day? Can't count, but like the one shitty comment will always stick out. It's the same way. Like if if I have a thousand pleasant interactions with someone else, uh nobody notices. But if I, mm-hmm. you know, get into if I pick a fight with somebody, you know, it's people are gonna remember forever.
3: I think that's the thing that unsettles me most. And this isn't actually even just like this isn't about streaming media or left-wing media or whatever. This no. is a, a problem of social media that you're right. It's the, it's the fights that always get most of the attention as opposed to the um, – I mean not, not entirely because some of like the big moments, particularly in recent left-wing media, things like um, you know, people doing these giant streams that raise huge amounts of money for a cause. So that that certainly is a, a, a thing that happens and, and does get a lot of attention when it does happen. But you are fighting against – and I think we have to be consciously fighting against this system that does want to engender conflict –
8: Yes. It, it it's also kind of difficult. And I and you know, keep in mind this is this is perhaps coming from a biased perspective, when there are individuals, and I'm not gonna name names, who do see that as an easy source of of generating attention. Mm-hmm. Uh it's it's very easy to the same way that like if I'm going to make a video on a subject, I will frame it as like I'm disagreeing with Ben Shapiro or I'm disagreeing yeah, yeah, with yeah. Jordan Peterson it's very easy to go uh look at thought slime there's a big piece of shit uh cuz he thought this when when actually this is the truth it's more attention grabbing than just you know a kind of neutrally positioned argument yeah so it it it's a it's a it's a tricky problem
3: yeah yeah I, I think one of the ones that um that i think on quite a lot well um i think that's most of what i wanted to talk about today did you want to like Throw in anything else, um, or or if not, we can go to plugs. Yeah, I
8: mean, I'm I'm good. That's pretty much it. I will say that one of the things that tends to bother me the most is people will occasionally say to me that uh, they'll they'll send a message saying you seem like a really good person, and I will say thank you, but please don't feel that way about content creators <laughs> because why would I make a work that portrayed myself as a bad person? And yeah. while I in my mind, think I am a good person, I think it sets the dangerous precedent that you could allow yourself to be emotionally manipulated by someone else who might not be.
3: Well, the name of the game, when you are creating media, particularly when you're creating media that's meant to make people feel things, Part of that is manipulation, right? Yes. Manipulate is not an inherently negative term. You know, Stanley Kubrick is trying to manipulate you when he makes a movie. Um, I'm trying to persuade you. Yeah, you do. It does. It is incumbent upon the audience for their own protection to keep that in mind. And it's incumbent upon ethical people who make stuff uh, to not create cults, at least not create too many cults. (laughs) Yeah,
8: as much as you can avoid it, for sure.
3: Yeah. All right. You want to plug your pluggables?
8: Sure. Uh, you can find my work at youtube.com/thoughtslime or thoughtslime.com. You can also find my horror content at uh, youtube.com/scaredycatsTV. Scaredycats was taken. That's me. That's what I do. I make videos about farts and or butts.
3: <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That is going to be it for us today. Um, we will be back probably tomorrow. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
1: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
0: Listen to Locatura Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.